Four Americans quarantined for three months in the middle of a global pandemic, separated into two worlds, the big cities and Montana. They competed against each other for emails and laughs. But now the podcast has merged into one. Historians is the name, and it is everyone for themselves. Every third month, the entire team will hike deep into the recording studio to take part in recording an actual new historians episode, where they must prove one of their own less insightful than the other ones. In the end, only one will remain who will leave the podcast with fame, fortune, and love, and no cash. Welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that has been declared an autonomous zone. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, resident of the Sand Spit. I'm Mike Bloom, and let me just say, Mookaluka Mau Mau Um, And this is Paul Oslison. Nah, I added an A at the end to make it a little more exotic, a little more fun. <laughs> yes. And welcome to our listeners back to Survivor Historians and our continuing coverage of Borneo. And I will say right at the top here, I don't know if I'm speaking for the other three guys, but we are about to go through what I think are perhaps the strongest four-episode stretch in Survivor history. If not the most, it's got to be one of the top. Uh, We are going to go through episodes six through nine of Survivor Borneo, the Joel boot through Jay for Jenna. And boy, do I have a lot to say about these. So uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this before we delve into this pretty quickly today? I feel like the popular mentality about survivor borneo 20 years after the fact is this idea of like well you know pagong was the fun loving tribe that didn't strategize at all and the evil toggies took advantage of them in that regard but to your point mario this stretch of episodes are particularly strong we talked about this last podcast how the first two episodes are fun to look back on but not exactly indicative of the high highs that survivor can hit and i think three through five was a particularly nice stretch three specifically but yeah i really do feel like especially watching these episodes back that it's firing on all cylinders and there is surprisingly i think more game talk and humanistic talk than maybe people remember about survivor borneo and also surprisingly from the pagongs as well we're going to end this podcast talking about an attempted move that the pagongs are actually going to make so i'm excited to get into this in a number of levels one of them because it does highlight this group of people that i think is remembered for being a bit aloof when it comes to the gameplay aspect of it all when you actually look at it there's a lot more of a complicated situation bubbling under the surface 
Um, now, I will just echo what what Mario, what you were saying about it just being like such a good stretch of episodes was I wasn't even thinking about it that much. But when I jumped into um, rewatch these episodes today and um, I said, uh, I think I told you all before recording, I said, you know, I really wouldn't have to rewatch these episodes. These ones I've probably seen. These ones are definitely episodes I've seen fewer times than, say, like maybe Australia through um, Thailand, because I, I didn't have all these recorded for quite a while. So I've probably only seen these episodes maybe 20 times, 20 <laughs> maybe 25 times. So it's, I bet it is good for me to, to watch them and kind of get, remember the sequence of things. Um, but when I was watching episode six, I had a thought halfway through, I just was like, wow, like, like this show is in its groove right now. Like it is rocking and rolling. They figure out what they're doing more. We know all the characters. And I just, I had this feeling of, wow, this show has really found its groove and it'll definitely carry its way through the, you know, through the next four boots. So I'm excited to talk about it. It's now, just a, it's a, it's, a, it's a different show. And that's the whole thing is that I think the thing that makes me mad about the whole thing is that to me, when when someone says like, you know, old school, new school survivor and blah, blah, blah. And I think that all of us have said several times and I think all of us sort of echoed it when we did a little AMA on Reddit that like there is no I mean, yes, there's an old school. And yes, I guess there's a new school, but there's lots of different schools in between. I don't think that there's like one divide that happens, but the. What people watch today on Survivor and what they watch in the past, and I think that, you know, I'm going to bring up on this podcast some disconnects that people have when they watch old episodes and go, it's boring because it doesn't have this, that, and the other thing. But, like, to me, this stretch of episodes, how they're constructed, how the narrative follows, and, like, what everyone's talking about in the episode, like, to me, that's the show. And that's the show that I remember, and that's the show that I cling to. And I fully get that that's not what the show is anymore. But to me, whenever you say the the, the television show Survivor, that's what I think about. Yeah, the thing that really jumps out at me the most over this stretch of episodes in particular is how much better Borneo get, gets as it goes along. Yeah. Like the first two episodes, I think, are kind of clunky. The third one has the Stacy stuff, but it's not an especially strong episode. And I think we talked about earlier, all the big stuff pre-merge are the Pagong boot episodes because they're far more interesting. But here's the ultimate compliment I could give to Borneo. And I just noticed this today. Someone pointed it out to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. Borneo becomes more interesting when it becomes a Paganging. And yeah. that's almost unheard of like it's almost you can't really explain why that works and that that's it goes back to my argument and i've said this before that i don't think the game itself is all that interesting of survivor like it's just okay vote each other out try not to you know be the last one on the bottom of the totem pole win immunities when you have to blah 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 like it's not that interesting where it gets interesting is where the ethics get involved especially this first season and like they know the Toggy alliance is going to pick everybody off and now it becomes ethics and justifying themselves and everyone playing to the camera trying to come off the best way because they know this isn't going to look good and to me that's just fascinating that like episode seven the gretchen one in particular i think is amazing i think the joel one is by far the best pre-merge episode episode six but like i don't think the gretchen episode is even the best of the season i think we get to episode nine jay for jenna I think that might be the single greatest episode, Survivor episode ever. I think it's so strong. And so it's amazing to me the show gets better when it's a pecanging. Well, I think it's because you're not supposed to look at the result and work backwards from there. And I do feel like when it comes to Survivor storytelling, I think a lot of it, to Jay's point, 
is a bit results oriented, quite literally, right? It's this, okay, mm -hmm. this person gets blindsided here. Let's work backwards as to how we got here in this particular 42 minutes. And I think what Survivor Borneo has going for it in particular from a novelty perspective is the structure to it. I mean, the merge episode, I totally forgot that half of it is just Jenna and Sean visiting each other's camps and then going to this retreat. That, you know, the actual merge, what is considered the climax of a lot of these Survivor seasons, a lot of the action in, in this particular version of it, the first ever merge, was not actually these two groups coming together. Uh, we are sort of missing in these four episodes in particular the usual, like, pre-tribal council segment, right? Where they're like, all right, it's either this person or this person. A lot of the... Uh, editing towards the people going home is actually very subtle. And so it's so interesting, especially going into like episode six, for example, how they edited the Joel boot, where they really dropped in hints about it throughout the episode, rather than it sort of being reserved for a segment right after the immunity challenge before tribal council of, okay, I guess, you know, we could go with Jervis or wait, this Joel option presents itself. Instead, it goes for a much more unconventional way to do it because they're sort of thinking on the fly with this. And so as a result, I think, Mauro, your point is valid in that I think maybe if a different group of editors had taken this story in a more modern lens, it would become a bit rote, right? Because the strategy itself is not complicated, but because this, they have this ability to sort of change their form whenever they want to, you know, you don't need the reward challenge at the 25-minute mark. You don't need tribal council at the 50-minute mark. Then you're going to be able to play a bit to what's going to get more time, what's going to get less time, and how are we going to contribute to looking at these characters and subsequently why they make the decisions that they do. Yeah, it's funny looking back at this. Now, I know uh, you weren't here, Mike, but when we first covered episode one on Historians back in the caveman times, I cannot believe we did that like a one-timer on Borneo. We must have just rushed through this part, huh? Do you guys even remember, Paul or Jay? What, our other Borneo podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, did we even talk about what a big deal the Gretchen boot was? I'm sure we must have, but then, like, in you know, one episode, we couldn't have done much. Did we, you just we... talk about your fanfic for three hours? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I remember you, like, talking about, like, Survivor Grease and shit into your tin can mic. But, um, no, I, I uh... <laughs> I think more than anything, it was, you know, we, we had the, the little uh, powwow with, with, with Beatles, sort of, um, our conversation with Beatles in the first one. And then we went back and, and did it again. But you sort of, like, wanted to, like, that podcast was framed in a sense of you asking us certain questions about things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about episodes or, or a chronology of, of how things went. And so, obviously, the Gretchen boot did come up at some point, and maybe we did talk about it, but we didn't really spend time talking about kind of the, the craftsmanship of the episodes themselves and kind of the narrative of the episodes themselves. You asked sort of like some questions, and we kind of just jumped around, and that's how it was. Okay. Well, we will not do that. Now, we, we love our listeners so much more now that I know you guys have come to listen to us delve into Borneo. And again... This might be the episode I'm most excited to record out of any episode we've ever done because there's like episode six through nine. That is the heart of the most important season ever. And again, I know the finale gets all the talk. Everyone loves the Borneo finale. But like six through nine to me, these are the big ones. Now, do you guys have anything else you want to add before we delve into this? Because we got a lot to talk about here. No, I'll, I'll talk about my stuff along the way. But I mean, oh, you're obviously on fan fiction? we have opinions. Oh, <laughs> 
I mean, I haven't written any, but I'm sure it'd be a lot different no, from whatever what, the hell Mario what, writes. What Jay does as a man of the stage is he turns his fan fiction into plays, and that's really how he brings his work to life. <laughs> yes, it's the, the old Mitch Hedberg line, put it in a play. Okay, so as as we left off here, we finished on episode five of Borneo. We just lost Dirk, and that is the last time we'll lose a Toggy for quite some time, which is good because, as we discussed, it's the uh, Pagongs that are way more interesting to watch them go. But uh, so where are we as episode five? So the Pagongs are up six to five, and there's every chance they could win the season. And this is something that is not mentioned enough when people talk about Borneo. Pagong comes really close to going to the merge in bigger numbers here did you i i'd completely forgotten about that till i watched this challenge yeah i mean it's it's if they like raise their flag a certain way right then they end up going and it's sort of like the sliding doors as to how does survivor history change after that now i mean look is there a chance that they stick together five or six strong maybe not uh considering what we're going to find out from gretchen this episode i also like it's been a while since we've been missing like jeff probes like in-person uh, interstitials, right? And we get one to open this episode here where he's he's even talking about how everyone has the merge on their mind. And this is a very unique episode. I agree with Mario that I think it's the strongest of the pre-merge. And I think one reason why is because this is a time where everyone sort of has one eye on the current situation and one eye towards the future. And so you see people, I think, approach that idea very, very differently. And I think particularly on Pagong, it brings out some very new personalities or new facets of the personalities we know. Okay, and before we get into episode six, one thing I want to get into people's minds here, because you hear this a lot, that modern fans cannot understand Borneo. They don't like it. They find it boring. They don't really get what an audience in 2000 saw in it. I want to just say one thing here that will will echo everything we're going to talk about the next three, four hours, however long we go here, that... In 2000, the audience, again, 40, 50 million people. I forget how many it was at the merge, but it's going to be 50 million by the end of the season. This is all like half of America watching the show. This is a big deal. How they would have watched this show and how they would appreciate the next four episodes are not, wow, this is an amazing game and it's so exciting. Almost everybody watching would have said, oh, my God, this game broke. Now how bad is it going to get? That's the whole thing that I want to get across to people. That's Survivor Borneo. It's the game show that went bad along the way and did not turn out what everyone expected it to be. And that's why it was so fascinating. So, like, when people say, oh, Richard was such a great player, like, it was amazing. People loved his win. It was so, you know, innovative and influential. No, it wasn't. No, this is, like, the worst-case scenario. Like, everyone watching, when we get to the Gretchen merge, it's like, oh, my God, the bad guys are going to win and they're going to cheat to the end. So that's the underlying mindset people have to realize from 2000 when they watch this now. You can't watch it from a modern perspective. You won't understand it. Yeah, I'll, I'll read a quote from Burnett's book in uh, reference to the, to the Gretchen vote. In one bold, glaring, awful vote, Survivor had changed. The show's moral compass was gone. Whatever was good, whatever was honest, whatever was right about all the backbiting and duplicity and longing and fear and insecurity and outright deception in the game was gone. Uh, and I think I think you know Burnett speaks about how the crew was actually like raging as the show was going on that this was actually happening because they like to feel like uh, you know that the show was sort of a reflection of humanity 
and they felt that I think they said that the winner of Survivor would represent the wondrous core essence of humanity, and they <laughs> felt that in the alliance prevailing that that was uh, that the game had hit a new moral low, and that they realized that the mirror they held up to society did not show a, an image that they were necessarily happy with. If that indeed was true. <laughs> That's great. I love the way Burnett writes. Now, Jay and Paul, Paul especially because you were younger. Was that your feeling as the season went along that it somehow broke? Um, bro- I mean, like I, 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 again, I was ten years old, so I can't fully like remember exactly what it was, but I remembered there being a negative sentiment, and like people got more pessimistic about what the show is. So it's, it was interesting as as viewers increased about how like the negativity also increased about mm-hmm. like, you know, and I think it will take a long time for reality TV to move away from the stigma of it's this really dirty, ugly thing that, that gives people an excuse to be mean. That's something that had lingered for a very long time. So um, I, I do remember that element of it. Uh, I mean, uh, exactly. It, and I think that that's the thing that people need to understand is that, you know, Survivor has gone through many iterations and changes and the game has morphed and evolved and twisted so much through the years and it and it sort of had to. But like I think what people don't understand is they look at a lot of these these early seasons and they're like, boring, nothing's happening. They're not doing all this sort of stuff. And it's like because it's not just that Survivor is finding its way in this first season. It's just that everyone is finding its way. And I'm trying to come up with a good analogy, like with video games and all these other things. And there's a lot of things that go on to, but I think that um, a, a novel concept is the concept of um, what's called spawn camping, which is uh, like when people would play, and it was sort of the result of some early kind of shooter games, like especially sort of uh, tournament shooter or arena shooter games where like you ran around, you like had to shoot enemies and you, you know, got points for kills and stuff like that. Basically, people who would like win games basically figured out where people would respawn after they died. And they basically would sit there with a good weapon and just wait for someone to respawn. And just as you respawn, you don't have any sort of like weapons on you. Cause you have to run around and pick stuff up and then start, you know, going around trying to kill all the other people. They would just literally pick people off as they would respawn. And then, so once you got an advantage and a couple people started to go down and you could get to a, a place where you can literally just sit there and pick off the people who are respawning into the game. Your kills would just go up and up and up and up and up. And everyone would say, that's broken. That's cheating. These people are spawn camping. That's dishonorable. It's cheating. The game is supposed to be running around trying to do things naturally. But we don't have that. And I, I think that Tagi forming an alliance was everyone just basically saying they're finding some sort of weird loophole in the game that isn't right, and I don't like it. And and I think that that was that was sort of the prevailing attitude at the time. Yeah, very much so. And I'm glad you brought that up. That spawn camping because I I just saw a uh, a documentary, a video game documentary called Chasing Ghosts about the history of video game scores. And there was one game called Berserk where this guy figured out if you just go in and out of the same door a certain way, you can always just go to the same room, the same four rooms over and over and over. And like, even though he broke the record, the video game record, it is not accepted in the video game community because it was not the correct way to win Berserk. Just thought that would, uh, that reminded me of that totally. But yeah, again, we're not casting judgments though, because that's the thing that that's what makes Survivor so interesting is that the debate question will come up. Was it ethical? Was it the fair, correct way to play? And there's not really a right answer to that. Like, mm-hmm. 
there's I, I could I could listen to any argument and you're probably right. And that's why I think Borneo is so fascinating, because you could have those ethical discussions. In fact, there's one quote just uh, off the top of my head. I haven't researched this in a while. I remember this from 2000. There was a TV critic who just absolutely savaged Survivor. He hated this show. And it's because the alliance took over and because all these uh, quote unquote weak people could team out and vote out all the young athletes and the charismatic people and the leaders. And he said, what kind of a game is it where the weak, the unathletic and the totally unethical can team up and vote out the strong people? He's like, why would I watch that game? That is not a game that anybody should be cheering or watching. And that's, again, the mindset that I think a lot of people had. Right. I mean, I think that to your point about like questioning, in fact, the players themselves question like what the right way to play the game is. That's always been the interesting part to me as well, because, I mean, Jeff talks about that, you know, I can't remember if he talks about it in his intro every episode here in Borneo or just in the very beginning, that at the end of the day, no matter what season you're competing on, in Survivor, you are building a microcosm of society. And while Survivor, the game, dictates certain rules that you can do, the real edicts are determined by the players. And I think that's always the interesting part. That's why jury decisions have always fascinated me. Because, like you said, like it is so subjective. Every season, every person is going to have a different set of rules as to what are they going to do considering the people that they're playing with, the cameras that are watching them, etc., and it is no different in Borneo than I would say in some of these modern day seasons. Maybe it's just that uh, things have happened, become more uh, commonplace, that maybe people are more likely to, you know, stab someone in the back and not bat an eyelash at them. But I still think that this is indicative of the fact that people are essentially going to create what the rules of the game are. And much is true with any group of personalities you throw in there. Some people want to follow the rules of the game and some people will complain that those rules are unfair. Yeah, and I, I do think people have to remember also there's a 17th player this season that does not really factor into any other season, and that is the camera, in that everyone came into this game with a little different approach and perspective and mindset on what, on a, how big a deal this show was going to be. Like Dr. Sean wanted to use it as an acting reel. He wanted to be going to Hollywood, be like a TV doctor and be do an actor, be actor. Greg Buis, I'm sure, couldn't give a shit. He was just there for the adventure, and he was just going to make fun of the TV aspect. And then you have people like uh, Kelly and Colleen, who are very cognizant of these cameras on them at all times. And like when the Alliance takes over, they start framing it as, oh, these people are going to look bad on TV. I hope they can live with themselves when America judges them. Like, it's very, very interesting that that camera is very present in almost every scene, especially once this merge happens and the Alliance takes over. And it's just interesting to watch almost everybody trying to spin the narrative on how it's, they're going to be portrayed on TV because they know it could go either way. All right. You ready for episode six? I thought we were going to do it there, but we sidetracked. <laughs> All right. So Dirk is gone. We start episode six. Again, what I think is personally the strongest episode pre-merge. And Jeff, like Mike said, Jeff says, you know, the merger is on everybody's mind. This is the last episode before it all turns individual. And again, no one knew what an individual look, game of Survivor was going to look like. So it's all, I mean, this is all <laughs> preamble at this point. We have no idea what's going on. And we start with the Toggies slacking off and having a Pagong day where they do nothing. <laughs> well, there's that, but but also, can we can we marvel at the concept that, you know, yes, we've we've stated a million times and we've stated it then. They didn't quite know how this game was going to go in a lot of ways. And you could tell them, like, we're going to throw you out there, you're going to be on two tribes, 
blah, 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 blah. But they still had to figure so much out. There's so much unknown that these guys are dealing with out there. But at the same time, there are things that they do know. They do know that, you know, they're going to have challenges and they're going to merge when they get to 10 total people and they're going to go all the way to a final. Like they're, they knew the merge date. They knew things like that. Whereas like in Modern Survivor, it's always kind of like they merge whenever production says they're going to merge and they like to keep you know, tribe swaps and, and, you know, weird twists and things like that under wraps just to keep everyone off guard. Whereas the game's keeping everyone off guard because it's a completely new concept, but there are certain finite things, dates like the merger that are in like in concrete. And that's amazing. It's a goalpost. Yeah. And and we'll talk about it when we get to the Greg episode that Jenna's like, I'm just happy I got to this point. Like, I feel like modern players do this as well, but it's because it's more of a predictable structure that I think there are certain you know, mental checkpoints that you want to get to. I also love that production over the years apparently pulled a, a reverse Dr. Sean and that they removed the R from merger. I don't know when merger became merge. I don't know if that's an Australia thing or if it just sort of adapted to that word over the years. You know, it's funny because merger makes more sense and immunity talisman makes more sense than necklace. At least I like talisman more. It's an, interesting that they dropped those because I like the older versions of those. I don't know you're a big fan of them calling it council instead of tribal for short. <laughs> I, I really wish we could have kept voting alliance too you know not clunky at all the voting well, the, alliance reared its ugly head yeah mike you mentioned tribal i never heard tribal until like season eight or nine as far as i knew everybody always called it tc on the message boards oh we're going to tc like i never once heard tribal until so i think someone mentioned it in all stars i'm like oh were the players calling it that all along because you never heard it in the episodes i'm not going to say it was the first instance of it because i don't know i don't want to claim that but the first person that strikes out in my head with the with the phrase tribal is Kathy O'Brien. Yeah, in, uh, that's who I was thinking too. In All Stars, yeah. Paul would know this. Who was the first tribal? Put you on the. Uh, I'm gonna stump the expert here. I'll just say Kathy. Why not? <laughs> right. Sounds like sounds legit. <laughs> Paul's Paul's retired, man. Don't even with him. <laughs> okay, so you know, we go. We're going into the merger here, and Toggy just basically sits there and shits on Pagong openly at the start of the episode. Even though I should point out, Toggy's down six to five. They are losing, yet they just talk crap about the Pagongs, how they hate them, how they're lazy, they do nothing. All they do, and I think Kelly says they play Island Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and they play in their mud volcano. Which, which they know about somehow. Yeah, uh, yeah much, that's that's leads to the question. How do they know about that mud volcano? Yeah, much like we we talked about this last time, right? How Pagong found out about like Toggy catching fish, I think, or something like that. But yes, yeah, Sue basically goes like does a roast of Pagong at this point. She says, uh, "What Greg is too psychotic. Jenna is a speedball, so I guess she's responsible for the death of John Belushi. Uh, <laughs> Jervis is a pervert, which like." given what Jervis is sort of associated with this episode might be a bit too prescient. But I think what's also great about this particular stretch of episodes is that it really does highlight, you know, how Tagi is really going to have their shit together going into the merge and really come across as a united front San Sean, where Pagong, which again is, is remembered as the happy love tribe, is sort of going to go into the merge at each other's throats. Uh, and this just really shows how, like, it does seem like they're all sort of united in this one opinion, even a young blood like Kelly is still sort of has disregard for the Pagongs because of their reputation as being lazy to the point where all they need to do is just be united in those first couple votes. And then they just need to pick off the Pagongs despite Kelly's misgivings about actually getting rid of these people. I have to do one small correction. His name is not Jervis. It's Jarvis. <laughs> and Gene. Yes. And, and Jarvis is a pervert. <laughs> Jarvis is a pervert. Greg's way too psychotic. 
Yeah. But again, watching these episodes, you know, 20 years later, it's I just Sue is the one that stands out to me. Sue, to me, is the star of the season. Every time she talks, it's hilarious. She has a great quote. And I love her bloodlust. She's like, when we get to Bagong, those chickens better be all dead because we're going to kill them. <laughs> so anyway, speaking of that, let's go over to Pagong, and it's time to kill some chickens. Yeah, and this is the first ever, like, you know, chickens have become such a tantamount part of Survivor, pre-merge especially, like, even as late as season 38. And this is really the first time we get it here with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this really is, like, the chicken episode. Yes. Yeah, so, although we started a couple important subplots here, with Jenna being the one bloodlusty one on Pagong, saying that we're going to kill all our chickens and we'll start with the little nasty one which I appreciate, but there's also a more subtle subplot. And again, this ties into, you hear a lot why people say, why was Colleen so beloved in, in, in Borneo? They don't, a lot of modern fans don't seem to get that. Watch every time they kill animals, how Colleen feels bad and cannot watch and has to turn away. And later in the season, we'll see her doing the open pouty lip and please begging for pity and mercy for the animals. Like it'll all start right here. Colleen cannot handle watching animals be killed. She's the only one on the track. It's funny with Colleen because, like, like you said here, she really – like this is one of the first times where she's really like has a big heart for things. But then we also see her being very kind of cutting mm-hmm. starting in yeah. this episode where she makes comments about Jervis and Joel. And then obviously when we get to the merge, she'll have her digs at Richard the whole time. So uh, I think starting this episode, you, tr- you get to see why Colleen became such a fan favorite. I thought you were going to say, Paul, it's funny because I imagine that the reason why she was recruited before the Rob Schneider film The Animal is because her love of animals. Well, that was my second point. Thanks for stepping on my toes, temp. <laughs> so, yeah, we get the animal scene. Oh, yeah, before we go there, you just mentioned that about Colleen, how you notice she's a little snarky and loves to cut people down. This came up on the message boards again today, and it's something I've always talked about. We'll get a lot in Colleen in this episode. This is really her stretch of episodes. For years, she was always compared to Elizabeth. Elizabeth Falarski in Australia, America's sweetheart, the gentle one who teams up with the old guy. That's not Colleen at all. Like, it's funny when you watch these episodes, a much better comp would be Courtney Yates if you want to compare someone to Colleen. That's my opinion. Mm, I could see that for, like, post-merge Colleen. Because I think, you know, if I'm going off of the depiction in Burnett's book, you know, Colleen, as depicted by Greg, was the kitten, right? Like, she Mm -hmm. really was sort of under his wing. She was looking for a friend, someone to confide in. Uh, But Burnett sort of describes her, and she's someone who is a bit more ruthless in real life than you would expect. Like, she was a firefighter in Ghana once upon a time. She, like, went out on her own to work at the Paris Film Festival for some time. So she's a fiercely independent person. But I, I don't know if the game of Survivor just had her take a step back and act a bit more meek at first. But I feel like Specifically, once they get rid of Greg, Colleen really comes out to shine. And it also helps in that she's the last Pagong. So really, if you're getting like the anti-Toggy perspective, you have to keep going back to her more and more. But it is interesting how I feel like Colleen was all but absent in the first five episodes, sans that storyline of Greg of will they, won't they. But starting this episode, we really start to see her personality shine a little more. And I wonder if the sweetheart reputation just comes from the fact that like she was the underdog here. And that's really what people paint in a positive light. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for you were the last standing good guy. That goes a long way. Sorry, Rudy. Apologies to Rudy. Well, and I, and I think that, you know, now Survivor has a lore about it, right? We're so many seasons in. And we've talked about, like, archetypes and, and this, that, and the other thing. But, like, you know, 
the problem here is that this is this and Survivor Australia. Like these are the most watched seasons of Survivor. Like this is when Survivor, you know, Survivor becomes this phenomenon here during this first season of Survivor. We don't have any other person, any other lexicon to to compare people to people. And so people have to be thrust into these sort of roles, right? Like like this person's a villain. This person's, you know, a goofball. This person's a this. And it's like, I think Colleen sort of gets thrust into that, oh, she's young, pretty, intelligent, and also a good guy kind of person here. Here you go. It's you. And, you know, you can look at it now and basically say, well, Colleen doesn't fit all of those sort of things. And it's like, no, she really doesn't. But that's what, you know, that's that's what all the articles were writing at the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Although one thing that I had completely forgotten until I watched these episodes, there's two episodes post-merge where she like has almost every confessional in the episode. I forgot what how much what a prominent narrator is she some of the like Jay through Jenna Jay for Jenna especially that's just all Colleen commenting on how Toggy sucks it's awesome. <laughs> well, that's the other thing as well is that she's the voice of the people in that regard. We just spoke about how much disregard people had for Toggy at the time. You'd imagine that like she's the audience analog then. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. We're about to our, come to our first iconic scene of this stretch of episodes. And no, it is not Richard being naked, although it does show up here for the first time. But we are going to talk about, first, Rudy gets into the alliance. He's like, all right, for now, I guess I'm in the alliance now. Again, he's kind of unwilling, but he has to. He's pragmatic. But now we go over to Pagong, and we get a scene that everybody talked about at the time. Everyone remembers the infamous scene you never actually see happen, one of the great fails in Survivor camera work, the cow remark. Do you think it's because it was at night and it just, I don't know, maybe they had less people staffed at night that that ended up being the thing? Because, yeah, this is one of those cases. I talked about this, I think, in the first episode, how the first season is really done in a documentary-like format where it's more so the confessionals are people not necessarily divulging their own feelings, but more so recapping what happened. And this is definitely an instance of it, right, where it literally is a he said, she said about the comments that Jervis made and Joel apparently laughed at in support of. Yeah, I'm sure we got a lot to talk about in this one. And this was a big deal at the time. This is, uh, for re- to recap, Jervis, apparently, again, this is all allegedly. We never see it in the episode. You just see them talking about it later. Apparently, they're sitting around at night, and they're talking about dating. And they were talking about mistakes that men and women often make in dating. And Jervis uttered the dread remark, women are the stupidest thing on the planet next to cows. <laughs> Which he later clarifies, saying, in dating, I meant in dating. Oh, just give it some context, and it's okay. Before we dive into the actual content of this, it's it's interesting that this really is a trademark of these early seasons. Almost every one of these original seasons has this moment that's not captured, but it's debated. In season two, we're going to have the, the beef jerky gate. Mm-hmm. Season three, we're going to have eating the beans in episode one. Season five, obviously, the whole Gandia uh, Ted stuff. In season six, the granola bar. Like, there's always these moments that are really kind of a staple of these early seasons. And so I wonder if every single time it's because they didn't have anything or if, um, you know, if there is some, there was some strategic, um, you know, plan from the producers of, of leaving it open-ended. I, I kind of would like to think probably for this first one, they just didn't have the footage because it seemed like that was the case for a lot of season one. But Yeah, but to your um, point, Paul, could it have been a thing where they realized that they're like, oh, this is a, a cool way to tell a story. Let's, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe present all these more unsolved mysteries of Survivor. Because, yeah, to Mario's point, like, 
nobody has ever really, outside of like, you know, petitioning the six Pagong members that were left as to what happened, nobody truly knows what happened that night. I also like how Jervis apparently did not only say, uh, you know, women are the stupidest thing on the planet next to cows, he prefaced it by saying, don't take this the wrong way. (laughs) Ah, the old no offense thing. Yeah, but my personal opinion on this scene is that the cow remark has almost nothing to do with what happens in this episode, but it's more titillating and people love to bring it up. So it got hammered into the storyline a little more. Like, I've always just thought you have a male-female split. It's three versus three for the Pagong saying, you know, oh, we don't do alliances. No, you sure you do. You just do it by gender instead. And then the guys just didn't have Greg. So it's really four against two. I've never thought, and I think uh, I've heard other people say agree with this as well that this had nothing to do with the remark or the, the, the uh, why the vote happened the way it did. But again, as we've all said, this was a huge moment in the show, one that would be talked about all the time. Um, although, if you watched when they're first talking about it, the girls are like laughing about it. Like I don't think they're that upset about it. But again, it will be brought up several times in this episode. Well, I wonder if it's because like they knew they could get rid of him or Joel. Right. Like this mm-hmm. is the first thing they say is like they're all joking of, oh, yeah, you know, when we, Gretchen says, oh, we should hold up our votes to the camera and moo. Like, I think maybe the reasons why they treat it so lightly is because they know like, hey, we can pretty much cut one of these guys off. And I agree. I think that some people have sort of remembered this episode as like, well, Joel got unfairly blamed for a remark that Jervis made. But rewatching this and we're about to get into like the Joel depiction of it all. My supposition is that. The women were just looking for an excuse to vote off Joel at this point, and this thing just sort of fell in their laps. And that, combined with Jervis apparently being Teflon with the charm he's exuding, made them be like, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, oh, Joel was laughing. We have to vote off Joel at this point. But it had very little to do with like the actual remark itself. Yeah, I mean, that would be my personal opinion. Gretchen and Joel were always battling for the leader of Pagong, and at a certain point, only one of them could survive. And the women were all tight, Jenna, Colleen, and... Gretchen, they were not going to vote for each other. So at a certain point, Joel was going to go. That's that's been my argument as well. And I know Joel and some other people have all have said that in interviews over the years that they felt bad that Joel got pulled into this, and everyone in America thought, oh, Joel was you know this huge sexist and got voted out over that. Although, what, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, if you this segment in particular, it's really interesting when you watch it. It's not framed as Jervis and Joel are horrible sexists. It's actually framed as, isn't Jervis charming? He can say anything and get away with it. So the whole tone of this scene is probably not what you remember. It's just a commercial for how amazing Jervis is that he never takes heat for anything. Yeah, this is, I mean, I would ask, is this like the first casual mention we get of like a social game? Right, because Jervis is gonna. We have this whole sequence of like Jervis not doing a thing at camp. It, Colleen says outright, Jervis is on a free ride, and there's this great shot that's emblematic of that of Jervis and Jenna walking with the canteens, where he's carrying one and she's carrying literally them all. Uh, <laughs> but Jervis outright says like, "I know coming out here was all about charm and personality. That will get me through." And you know, I think nowadays in Survivor, when we always talk about the social game, this is one of the first indicators we get to it, where maybe you have people people like Richard and Sue more so talking about, like, you know, bringing people together and voting along common wishes. Some people are talking about strength. Some people are talking about survival. To my memory, I think Jervis is the first person to talk about, like, yeah, I'm going to schmooze people, and that's going to keep me around, rather than actually, like, targeting others. 
Yeah, and I have no doubt that's exactly why he was cast, because they wanted somebody like that. We want somebody who will openly say, I will do no work. I will contribute nothing to camp, but I would just make it impossible to vote me out because they like me. And I think they intentionally cast him just for that reason, that Jervis just had at that age that kind of charm. <laughs> have you... <laughs> Have you guys ever seen Jervis's high school yearbook? It's floated around yearbook uh, websites before. Just to show what guy, what guy, what this guy's personality was like at age 20, 21, 22. I will say this for our readers who have never seen it. It says, everybody in your yearbook gets to put your hobbies, your favorite activities, and your favorite thing. Jervis just wrote, favorite activities, white girls. <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> So that's Jervis right there. He's going the straight up blazing saddles technique. He's like, I can say whatever and no one's going to vote me out because I'm charming. Well, in Amanda Kimmel's yearbook, she was uh, Miss Mont, most likely to be Miss USA and best dressed Two superlatives. Did Amanda know there were 50 different states? <laughs> I don't think she chose the category. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Amanda, you get two superlatives. Her. Please pick your two superlatives. Okay. Total aside, because I don't know when the next time we're going to talk about Amanda Kimmel. I recently was talking, met, uh, talked to someone who went, who graduated the same year she did, and I was, I was like, oh, do you remember Amanda Kimmel? She's like, Amanda, Kimmel. oh yeah, she, she looked like she was thirty years old when she, when she was a senior in high school. She was beautiful and did not look like she belonged in a high school. So, there's my Amanda Kimmel story for you. Okay, so this is another thing to add to the Amanda Kimmel mythos. Apparently, she is ageless. <laughs> and also, her favorite activity was white girls. <laughs> You're getting your yearbook stories mixed up here, Mario. Yeah, I know. Okay. So anyway, yeah, so this this is Jervis. And again, this is the whole cow scene. They, they It was played in advertisement and commercials. Brian Gumbel brings it up at the reunion show. I don't think it was that significant in the game among the players. But man, on the TV show... Remember the guys, they had like to have a special emergency. Rob has a podcast with a cow. We had to talk with a cow and interview him. And then at the reunion, they had a special with a dairy farmer, a segment where we talked to a dairy farmer. It oh, was Dirk. Dirk, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But it was a big deal. This was, everyone remembers this as one of the top moments prior to the merge. Although I don't think it actually did, did made any difference. Okay. Speaking of different things here, our reward challenge is coming up. And this is a fun one because... <laughs> just the producers being straight up dicks in this season yeah. they give the players a can of dog food and they don't tell people what it is just because they want to see if the players will eat it yeah this is this is definitely like hey these are people are starving let's have them do stuff and see if they'll actually be able to do it like it's a triple dog dare speaking of dog food and i mean i guess there's a little bit of a bite like rudy or like richard try some of it jenna and gretchen will like cook it up and then take like four or five bites the only thing that really comes from this outside of the outlandishness of it is Greg deadpan saying, I choose my chemicals and preservatives wisely, and that would just throw everything off balance with regards to eating dog food. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this, now this is a weird challenge. Even at the time, I thought this was a weird challenge. Looking back at it now, I kind of like it because it happens at night. You don't have enough night challenges. But we have a reward, reward challenge here where they have to run into an army barrack and retrieve a bunch of supplies. Right. This challenge is great because it's got like there, there there's a narrative, right? Like they're giving them it's it's following this kind of like survival ish narrative. And also this is, you know, Pagong and, you know, uh, this area has had some World War Two sort of stuff happening. So like they're, they're going with this whole like survival army ish kind of motif. Right. So like it's at night 
and they've got this motif. They have to go into a barrack. So, like, there's all these sort of, like, delicious little elements in this challenge. And then I love the fact that it can absolutely just be broken, yep. which is which is just fantastic. Yeah, I'm so intrigued by the aesthetic of it, to Jay's point, in that there's so much mist in the air. And I'm trying to figure out if that's, like, humidity or condensation or if they just, again, producers being producers, just, like, pumped a bunch of fog into it right before they walked in there just to make sure that their vision was obscured and poor Richard, you know, takes the wrong item and basically gives Pagong the win. Yeah, this was one, if people haven't seen it in a while, it's kind of confusing. They run into a barracks, they have to get a can opener, a pocket knife, and a, helmet, and a helmet. And if you accidentally grab the same item twice, you were you disqualified for your team. And again, it happens very quick. It's kind of confusing because it's in the dark. But Richard, the inventor of Survivor, the only one who was smart, grabs the second pocket knife and disqualifies the Toggies. So Pagong basically backs into a win where they get real canned food and chocolate. And I love the fact that, like, you know, it, it goes back to that the challenge got broken. And then, you know, like Richard comes back with a duplicate knife and Jeff's like, well, that's a diff- duplicate knife. That counts as another thing you can't. And like you see Kelly, like, you know, grab the flashlight and the knife like she's going to go back and like fix the problem. And Jeff's like, no, 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 it's over. And it's like it's it, the challenge got weirdly broken. So, like, even though we love the aesthetic of it, it's designed poorly. It happens. And then they don't understand the full rules. Like he brought back a duplicate knife. You can't go back and like replace it or fix it or that's not like a time penalty. It's just, it's over. You lost. Yeah. And that's the weird thing as well. And well, I, I think it's actually seen in the immunity challenge as well. And that I think a lot of these challenges in Borneo were not necessarily like, I can see a reason why, as rote as the do something and go to a puzzle at the end might be, you know, I got to talk with John Kierhofer about this and he said that like, you know, these challenges were fun in the beginning, but for the competition aspect of it, for building up the dramatics, you don't want it to be a blowout by the end. And this is one of those examples, right? Where because Toggy got disqualified because Richard brought back the wrong knife, they just have to wait for Pagong to run back. And then even when like Jervis comes back, like he's like, oh, I guess we won? Okay, sure, I'll take the chocolate. Like To Jay's point, everyone just seems very confused by what happened. <laughs> Luckily, it's like very short and sweet. But again, cool visuals. And I should point out the music after this challenge is really cool. They, they bring out this big heroic army music for like the victorious Pagongs, who are really at the height of their powers here. This is the, the last good moment the Pagongs are going to have all game. They win the reward, they get the chocolate and the, uh, the canned food. They go back to camp and they're just celebrating. Because they're dominating the Toggies. They're going to win. They're up six to five. They have a belly full of food. They got all this stuff. And Jervis even says, we're so close. And this is the one thing, again, a lot of the audience nowadays wouldn't remember. Pagong was very close to dominating this merge. They, they had it. They knew it. They're like, all we have to do is win this one more immunity challenge. And we are the more athletic tribe. And they thought they had it. And this is where... Joel, I believe, starts talking for planning what Pagong is going to do after the merge, and he brings up the dreaded A-word alliances. And again, to be fair, it seemed like from the people he was polling, nearly everyone was into it except for Gretchen. And again, if you're talking about like the moral compass, as uh, Mark Burnett described before, it is that to a T in that you know she was against the idea of even voting along her tribe mates. I think she basically said, like, hey, if they're voting for the person I want to vote for, that's fine. But she seemed to be the most vocal against this idea of banding everyone together. And again, the sliding door stuff, who knows if Joel was in the merge, if he was the more vocal person to bandy everyone together, 
instead of being gone and having Gretchen be the de facto leader and being like, all right, everyone for themselves, then maybe this post-merge would turn out differently. Right. And and that's the whole thing is that, you know, Mario is talking about how like Pagan could have gone into the merger six to four, but it's like, are they then doing a voting block that's big enough to, to oust Toggy? Like, well, yeah, it's, it's such a weird rabbit hole to go down because if Toggy goes in with four, they lose Dr. Sean, and now you don't have that alphabetic voting strategy floating around to screw right. everything up. So it's, but again, who gets voted out? I mean, yeah, who's, who's going to call the shots for Pagong? If it's Joel, they could easily rally five. It, again, it's just it's they, they hard could to rally five. Yeah. They could rally five, right? They could, but at the same time, as established by this episode, they don't totally love Joel. They don't, right? yeah. And so, and so I feel like that is... You know, that's not a given. And given the fact that, you know, I know that if Joel's there, things can change. But just given the fact that we're coming up on a four one 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 vote, like there is so much like that's not like, you know, there's a lot of times when people go like they like to play a what if game. You know, it's a very Bill Simmons esque thing. Like, what if this happened instead of this? And so it's a zig instead of a zag. But it's like taking Joel into the merge. And then taking Sean out of the merge and other things, like, who knows where this could have gone? Like, if you say you can predict that, you know, you, you really can't, you know, like, you just can't. It, it's just it's just boggling to figure out how that would change. Well, another factor is that Gretchen seemed to, like, have a soft spot for the Toggies as well, right? We find that our next episode, or she talks about our next episode of, like, I don't regret being at Pagong, but I always wonder what it would be like if I was on Toggy. So I can imagine, you know, if she has some sort of power as well to talk about who she wants to vote for, there's a chance that maybe she doesn't vote with the Pagongs, and therefore that could be something to expose as well. So yeah, I do agree that it's not necessarily an open and shut, like, okay, if the Pagongs end up going in 6-4, to four, then it's a slam dunk for them, they just take everyone out. But it could make things very, very interesting rather than just sort of, as Kelly's going to ascribe to it later, lambs to a slaughter. Yeah, and there's one other variable here that I think people forget, and no one's even brought it up yet in our discussion. If if Pagong goes up six to four and Toggy help you know, bands together and they vote out of Pagong and it's they take out Joel, Gretchen, Greg, whatever. It's still five to four Pagong. And at that point, they realize, oh, there were four votes teaming up on somebody. So their mindset could completely change after that first vote when they see four on one of them. So I'm just it's it's so weird to think about. Like, I just think it would have been a more interesting season at the end had Pagong gone up six to four just because of all the variables. But again, as Jay said, anybody who claims they know how it would play out is lying. Nobody knows. That being said, again, this this all gets complicated in that, again, you know, I think Joel is espousing something that is going to hold true on Toggy of, hey, if we don't stick together, they're going to take us out one by one. But it is shrouded in this montage of everyone complaining about Joel. So it's this really complicated characterization, right, where, like, we're supposed to be led to believe that this guy is cocky, he's chauvinistic, even though he's insisting that he's not, but what he's actually, you know, proposing ends up being a very valid gameplay maneuver for people on the other tribe. I wrote down that Joel was the original mansplainer. <laughs> like everything, every that whole montage, I was thinking, okay, if this was in today's terms, they'd be calling him a mansplainer. Yeah, he really, this is really a hit piece on Joel right here. This whole segment. And again, if you're people who are not a savvy, you know, reality TV watcher back in the day, this next segment is, is, propaganda 101 now i'm sure there's some truth to it but again we're just going to see everyone bagging on joel 
and you never see Joel actually doing anything or Joel doesn't get to answer. It's just everybody else saying he sucks. And it's like the narrative, again, is very it's very important for you to think that Joel has to go home and that the Pagongs have to be the good guys. It will work out better for the story if you don't think they ganged up on Joel and just took out this nice guy. But yeah, this this is like the first hit piece of anybody in Survivor history, just a whole segment where everybody craps on Joel. Is, is this the first? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, you could have uh, Sue bagging on Sean for like Super Pole and the bowling alley could be one, mm-hmm. but that's that's more one person than like an entire group, right? Like this is the everyone talking about Regina George, but more in the burn book way. Like, you know, Colleen calls him Captain America. We get this out of context clip of Joel saying, I really can't think of anything I've done that's bad. Uh, as Paul mentioned, Jenna sort of talking about mansplaining essentially. Gretchen essentially codifies Joel's behaviors in sexism, being like, oh, only the woman will not do anything to his liking. So, And look, I don't deny that I could imagine that just because of who Joel is, that, you know, he probably has like a certain standard of work ethic that for some reason he feels like the the women are not necessarily up to. And I can imagine why they sort of have that attitude. But like Mario said, I think considering, you know, the narratives that are going to be painted of people to come on this show and on reality TV in general you got to kind of take things with a grain of salt. And especially when we're supposed to find out why did Joel get voted out, this is a very clear indicator as to at least why the women of Pagong were done with him. Yeah, two things I want to say about this segment. The thing with uh, Captain America and Golden Boy, that's actually a Greg Buis quote. Is if you I know you read the book, Mike, and, and uh, Mark Burnett talks about it, how Greg in particular loved to make fun of Joel because Joel thought he was a huge athlete, a big star, you know. And so Greg would come up with the idea of calling him Captain America and Golden Boy, and Greg would basically uh, puff him up, as we would see later in Marquesas with Hunter. Greg would say, hey, tell us about how amazing you are at sports. Hey, why don't you do this and show us how to do this? And that's just Greg mocking Joel. And so the Captain America name comes from greg and colleen picked it up now colleen calls him that too but that is a greg buis thing yeah i think there's something about how you know they were it's one of those things where much like with bb they were sort of like jokingly calling him that to begin with but then joel apparently sincerely took the nickname and so now it makes it like twice as funny right that he's taking this mocking nickname at face value yeah of course yeah and so joel's kind of clueless what's going on he doesn't really get the dynamic of the tribe and then colleen has a quote here that i just think is unfair where she says Joel is talking way too much about his plans after the merge. What if he doesn't make the merge? We still have one more immunity challenge. Now, that's not really, she's not really cutting him down. He's not really doing anything wrong there. That's just saying, well, we haven't won this yet. But it's couched in a whole segment where they're shitting on Joel. And it's meant to, oh, why is Joel being so cocky? He's being arrogant. But like, no, Joel's just planning pragmatically for their future. They need to have an alliance or they're going to be in trouble. Right. And that's the thing is that, you know, they're, they're being shown in the moment as being like the, as taking a pagong day of like no we shouldn't be talking about this we need to plan for the moment let's laze around some more and again that's untrue because i'm sure they all had plans but it is weird i agree that that's couched within all this again of sort of yelling at joel for things that i think make sense it's just for a person that's unpalatable to them they sort of you know god joel helping old ladies across the street what a douchebag you know like taking usual <laughs> logical things and appropriating them to somebody you don't like. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to share a personal story here and I will couch it by telling Jay, it's not one of my stories. All right. <laughs> a couple of years ago on the funny 115, I wrote a whole essay defending Joel saying, I don't think the cow joke had anything to do. No, it was in an essay I wrote called 10 troubling reality TV moments. 
That was it. And I basically said, I don't think Joel really did anything bad. I think he got a bad rap. And what was interesting is Joel's girlfriend in real life read that article and she wrote to me and we started an email correspondence and she basically said, you know, Joel would never say this out loud, but no one has ever defended Joel ever in any survivor write up ever. He's been, you know, everyone says he's a sexist. He's the worst guy alive. He's an asshole. She's like, that was very hurtful to him. And she's like, I just wanted to thank you. You're the only person I've ever seen defend Joel Klug in a write-up. And so I ended up becoming friends with her and him. But that was a very sensitive spot to him and people that knew him in real life because they really felt he got crapped on by the show unfairly. So anyway, we'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to the immunity challenge here. This is, again, this is Pagong's chance to bury the Toggies. They're up six to five. They're more athletic. The challenge is going to be a Green Beret military obstacle course. And completely with the Green Beret is actually visiting the camp and dropping stuff off, which it's fun on multiple levels. First, we get to see, you know, uh, Rudy talk with the Berets a bit. We get to see the Beret encouraging Pagong to go in with a positive attitude. Apparently, as Burnett depicts, these poor Green Berets, I don't think they knew what they signed up for. Because, A, they were tasked to, like, build this course, which I don't think they ever had, like, Rafa, you know, build an immunity challenge or anything like that. Uh, but apparently... They So they traveled to each camp, obviously, to deliver the tree mail message. Apparently, on the way between traveling to the camps, uh, a big wave came in and tipped the boat over. So they were, like, completely drenched. And then they show up at Pagong, and Greg had fashioned a pair of shorts purposely that exposed his genitals. <laughs> like, he cut a very awkward hole in it so that his genitals were showing. And guess what he wore to greet the Green Berets? He wore that, and then he talked on the nature phone the entire time. So, like, these poor guys, look, I think still the the most unfortunate Green Beret experience has to go to what happened in Survivor Thailand with the incident that Paul was speaking about. But I think the silver medal goes to these two poor guys who, like, got entirely soaked, had to build a challenge, and then had this guy flashing his junk the entire time they were trying to give them instructions for a challenge. So, so, so the, the Green Berets show up. Now, again, pointing out once again, the main sponsor of Borneo was the U.S. Army. Very military-themed, respectful show. That was the audience they were trying to draw in. So the Green Berets show up to Tagi. Rudy just pulls him aside and explains the queer situation over here. And then they go to Pagong, and you got Greg with his balls hanging out and Jarvis being a pervert. And they're like, I'm not entirely sure. This is the demographic we want for the Army here. Can you imagine, like... To me, that's like the biggest shame, right? Like Survivor has over the years, you know, changed some of its lens. And, you know, obviously it was their first season. So they're just trying to get this thing off the ground and, you know, whatnot. Now that nowadays they're all about like envelope pushing and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, how much Greg stuff did we not see? Clearly a lot, right? <laughs> but it's <laughs> I mean, like literally, yeah, literally a lot. Right. But like. How interesting that there's a guy who's, like, actively trying to, like, weirdly subvert the television show. That would be so fun to see, like, all <laughs> of this stuff. Because, like, we have all these stories and we have all these, you know, we have Burnett's book. We have all these, like, you know, anecdotes about Greg. And it's like, he's a he's a hell of a personality for what we see. And then you get all these other things. You're like, this is literally that Dos Equis commercial. He is the most interesting man in the world. And we're only getting just a part of him. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it really is an iceberg, right? That, like, the, the I agree, like, look at what we're seeing and then imagine, like, ten times that and, like, that's probably living with Greg. So, like, you can understand why Sue just immediately bristles up against him, you know? It's because it's just, like... He took a pair of pants and cut a crotch hole in them. Like, <laughs> what? He was free-balling. <laughs> yes. He's just way too psychotic. Yeah, Greg Greg is kind of a legend, but it's a lot of stuff you don't see in the show. You just have to know about it. <laughs> okay, so let's go to this challenge, which I call Toggy's Last Stand, or as Jeff Probe says, Toggy's Last Stand. He pronounces the gee wrong. But it's the Red Beret obstacle course set up for military people by military people. And, of course, Rudy does not participate. <laughs> so... But uh, what is it that they got to do a blown bridge, cross a bunch of pylons, then run and do these uh, hurdles to jump over. And I always kind of like Pagong is doing well and they kind of get cost at the, they caught get the, they they fall behind at the blown bridge. And if I'm paying attention, I believe it's Gretchen. Gretchen's kind of screwing them up with the puzzle. And if you look at Toggy, Dr. Sean is dominating the puzzle and Toggy gets ahead and Toggy wins the challenge eventually, but Pagong makes it really close at the end to the point that mm-hmm. I forgot they only lose by like two seconds. Yeah, they, they catch up and they get to, because the last part is just like a dead sprint. And so again, Pagong are like these younger athletic people. And you can imagine on paper that they would dominate this, but yeah, it's this idea again of like uh, effort versus thinking first. And, you know, we'll, we'll say a lot about Dr. Sean in this podcast, but I will say that I think he was a key cog in making sure that Toggy goes five strong, and particularly that he ended up surviving to make the merge. Yeah, so again, this is Toggy's last stand. They win the challenge, and Rudy, again, Mr. Grumpy Pants, never says anything nice. The challenge is very close. Toggy wins, stays alive. We'll go into the merge 5-5. Rudy comes up, of all people, hugs the Toggies and says, that was fantastic. So way to go, Rudy, Mr. Sunshine. I, I love the ending of this challenge. It, it kind of gives me goosebumps every time I watch it. Like It's so raw when you hear them panting at the end, and Sue and Kelly are hugging, and you can just hear them panting because they just finished this obstacle course. Like It's such like a raw moment, and then the hilarity of the of where they have to go to get the idol just yeah. makes it even... Here's, here's an so... island full of deadly snakes <laughs> that we put the idol on. We'll get it. But but the, 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 for anyone who doesn't remember this, they would like, they kind of were experimenting with this, like you would win and then they would have to do something a little bit extra like kind of flashy to get the immunity idol and so um they've hidden the idol now on this snake island and uh, jeff goes over to talking and tells them look for the snakes you'll find the idol to which sue replies the snakes will find the idol <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine like, her well, like, kind them, of, like them getting there and just like okay snakes do your thing show me the idol <laughs> I mean, it's not like a hundred percent wrong, but it's like <laughs> those two short sentences. It's like when you're telling like someone to repeat this back to me that you understand this. Look for the snakes, you'll find the idol. The snakes will find the idol. Well, close. The snakes will turn into an idol. Gotcha. <laughs> those snakes are just way too perceptive. Now, oh, one joke I was going to make here is: imagine how much better Pagong would have done if Greg wasn't running with his balls hanging out. Yeah, that really it gives a new meaning to blown bridge. <laughs> yes, but again, uh, going to snake, going to Snake Island to get the idol with the camera shot, like from the snake perspective. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. We got the snake cam. Like to me, that's the whole thing that people don't understand. Like, w- there's this mix 
that's so fun. Like Paul talked about just the rawness of that scene where you can, you know, you see the emotion and like, there's not a lot of like added stuff to that, right? It's just, they've got a camera on them doing the scene and you're capturing kind of this raw emotion. And then you have this whole, like go to snake Island and get the idol. Cause they want shots of them going to snake Island. And then they have this like camera that's clearly on the ground and they have like, you know, Toggy members like shooing away the camera, which is supposed to be a snake for them to go get the idol. Like they had to film that. Like it's not even just like how ridiculous is snake cam. Like they set that up. Like the camera guy's like, okay, we're gonna have the camera on the ground, mate. Right? First of all, can you poop? Second of all, we're gonna have we're gonna have this camera on the ground. You're gonna shoot it away like it's a snake. Go. Okay, that that and, take was bad. Do it again. You know, it, it, like we need we need some hissy that. voices here. Come on, we need everyone to hiss. And Let's I go. love Let's that. And, and that's the case. And the two people they picked are Rudy and Sue, the two most no nonsense people on Toggy to actually do that. Some Australian shoving a camera into Rudy's face. Here, give me your natural reaction. Rudy just dropping f bombs. <laughs> like they're hot, they're tired, they're hungry, they're starving. They're in a high pressure sort of camera world game, and they're like, "All right, stop. You're you're gonna go get your immunity idol, but we need we need to frame this, guys. We need to frame this." <laughs> I never thought of it that way. You have taught me something new about Borneo. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing like that pops out of my head is you see that just that quick like snake cam shooting away and I just sit there and I go, they filmed that. They had to stop and film that. <laughs> Be the snake, Rudy. Be the snake. Right. I can't remember how many times we have snake cam over the course of this, but I cannot imagine this is the last time. Like, do you, you think they spent a lot of budget on that snake cam, right? And they feel like they got to get their money's worth? Well, you remember in the last episode when they have the rat cam eat the snake cam? Or is it backwards? I forget. But anyway, there's some cannibal cams going Rat on. Rat cam, eat the snake cam. Got it, Jeff. <laughs> All right. So, again, this is Pagong's final happy moment in the game we they had the preamble to this challenge where they were all confident and what they were talking about how they were going to do alliances and joel was going to lead them and now they lost now they're going to go into the merge five to five and pagong will never be happy again it's terrible they're so depressed and they go back to camp and i forgot this is the scene where a monitor lizard has eaten their chickens but i was trying to remember uh, yeah, I, I for some reason I, I thought that the Greg who counted the chickens before they hatch and his freak out where like he wrestles somebody in the waves or something was done in like a clip show or like Paul's mentioned before like the best you know uncensored moments from Survivor but yeah this came out of here and I mean speaking of raw that chicken carcass looks rough and I cannot imagine the monitor lizard cam of devouring that chicken over the course of this challenge. Well, did they have one or did they miss it? Like, that's always something that, that questions my mind because, you know, we're talking about Borneo. We're not talking about Australia. But, like, one of the most wonderful yet heartbreaking camera shots in Australia is when the camp gets flooded, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, again, you, you would figure maybe they're going to try to save it or do anything. But, no, they, they have cameramen at the, at the camp and they just wa they just film the water coming in they film the water like washing away everything and it's like there's no commentary there's no nothing they just film it and i'm sitting there going like with did they did they think to have people back at camp like my my guess is no and it's like it would have been great if they had like just shots in the camp and then this monitor lizard just comes in and just you know gaffles this uh this this chicken it would have been like incredible to see well, see, they didn't have the cameramen back at camp cuz all the extra cameramen were dressed up like snakes out on snake island <laughs> Wait, so uh, now the cameraman budget. had to be dressed up as snakes, not just the camera? <laughs> you know, Mark Burnett goes all the way, Mike. I don't know why you're, you're underestimating Mr. Burnett here. Oh, yeah, I did forget about the annex where he talked about all the snake costumes he had to bring out for, to Ponderosa. <laughs> 
And again, they didn't have the monitor lizard costume, but yeah, we don't see the monitor lizard and it's heartbreaking because this is like the biggest dagger to the heart of Pagong ever. And then they come back and now their food, the one saving grace they were looking forward to for dinner is gone. This monitor lizard ate two of their three chickens and they're pissed and they're hungry and they're tired and it just sucks. And of course, Greg, yeah, Greg with the, who counted the chickens, who counted the chickens? Again, this is, as Gretchen said, in his own way, Greg was the leader. He keeps their spirits up. He makes them laugh. But this had got to be a blow. And then they go from here right to tribal council. And so it's just them sitting around talking about how they have to vote somebody out. They weren't expecting to. And this will culminate in Joel being voted out. There's a fun little, again, one more time to dump on Joel. There's a fun, like, Joel proto-coach moment here. Uh, where, you know, Joel looks at the sky and he's like, I think the rain's just going to pass us by, no need to worry, and then cut to Greg swimming in an absolute downpour. (laughs) Well, I love the little subtle stuff, how they can uh, bag on Joel even more, where Colleen talks about how she's going to vote out Jervis, but it's couched in a way where it's basically slamming Joel, where she just says, Jervis is chauvinistic too, he just hides it better. And that's a slam on Jervis, but it, it's meant to be a slam on Joel if you listen to it. Don't take this the wrong way, but... Yeah, so anyway, this is the end of Pagong. They go to tribal council, and the, the cow comment comes up again, and Jervis is embarrassed, and he tries to blame it on Joel. Isn't this where he says, I said it, but Joel lives it or something? I, I forget where that comes up. But anyway, long story short, yada, yada, Joel is voted out. The last Pagong voted out before the merge. Probably the only one who could have stopped this Paganging, arguably, who knows. And, of course, the most famous moment here is where Gretchen writes his name backwards on the ballot as Lowell. <laughs> exactly. She predates all the Internet conversation that Keith's going to have uh, with his now fiancé next season i also thought gretchen points out a really interesting thing in her voting conversational of confessional with joel that she said you know not only the personal difficulties but she says you have the most money out of all of us and i do wonder if that played a part as well right yeah i think that was a huge part yeah because we're gonna get to like you know jervis is going to want to target jenna at a certain point because you know we're both single parents and she sort of is sapping up the sympathy that could possibly win in the end and you have to imagine that a la dr carl or even a la bb earlier in this season that the idea of like what you do outside of the game and whether you need the money that much is going to come into play and i can imagine again if you're coming up with a laundry list of reasons why you have to vote joel out this could be a very easy reason to do it against, like, the other single parents that are on this tribe. Yeah, no, 100% agree. And I wrote that on my notes, too. That's It's so telling when Gretchen walks up to vote for him, that's what she says. You have the most money, you need to win less. That she doesn't bring up the cow comment, I don't believe, at all. So, again, in my opinion, I'm just speculation, but I've read a bunch of interviews, Burnett's book and stuff. I really just think you had the three women, Gretchen, Jenna, and Colleen, who were not going to vote for each other. And that's half the tribe. It's going to be tough to break that up if those three are that tight. And you have the two guys, uh, Jervis, the pervert, and Joel. And then you have Greg in the middle. And Greg really has no interest in teaming up with these two guys. He probably is closer to Gretchen and all them. So it's like, it's a pretty obvious vote. It was going to be Joel or Jervis. And I feel bad that a lot of it had to be brought up to shit on Joel on the way out. Cause I don't think you needed that. He would have been gone anyway. And I think Burnett even says that in his book. That's, that's one chapter I always remember from the book. And I haven't read it as recently as you have Mike, where Mark Burnett even talks about how bad he felt for Joel. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, he was a type of person that was, like, expected to do well. And I think when it comes to, like, 
people alpha males going surprisingly pre-merge i think the prototype that we usually look to is hunter ellis but i feel like joel predates him in a certain regard that i think you look at him on paper he is someone who is not only slated to make it through the pre-merge but make it at least decently far into the merge depending on when the threats get taken out but the fact that he did not make it here just shows that like even for as much of the young love mentality was going across pagong there were still fraudulent personal difficulties which again is going to segue really interestingly into this next episode where this this vote is so indicative where even though it's a four to two vote pagong is still like a pretty independent group at this point and that is going to really screw them over come this first merge vote i'd like to check in with our 10 year old in the group here where did you stand on joel at the time did you did you have an opinion on this episode well, his last name means smart in German, so that's the only memory I have about him. So <laughs> I don't think I was particularly uh, uh, torn up by the Joel boot. <laughs> Just curious. Uh, yeah, let's see. Two things here. Um, the backwards J, when Jenna writes, or when uh, Gretchen writes Joel backwards and the J looks like an L, a lot of people made fun of that over the years. Have you ever, ever heard her explanation why she did that? I heard it now. I can't remember it as I'm sitting here, so I hope you have it. Yeah, she was like, I thought we were supposed to write the, the words backwards and you hold it up to the camera through the light. And I'm like, <laughs> it's a man. I'm sorry, had you not been to Tribal Council twice prior to this? Were you, was this new to you? Wow, who would have thought that Gretchen was related to Leonardo da Vinci in terms of being able to write stuff backwards without even thinking about it? You know, she's um, she was a preschool teacher, and when you're teaching those letters and you have a kid in front of you, you get very good at writing things backwards. I can say this as a former kindergarten teacher, that you write things, you get really good at writing things backwards for them to see. So she just was maybe practicing that. Okay, could be. Although, then she writes the O-E-L correctly, not backwards. So I'm not entirely sure what her game plan was, but it comes out as lol. She's splitting the difference, right? Like, she wants to compensate just in case uh, one is the other one. Like, if, if it ends up being backwards, then at least she gets the J out there, J for Joel. But otherwise, then she doesn't look like a complete fool. <laughs> okay, and my last thought, uh, I'll let Jay chime in here. You haven't said much, but I, I want to chime in. One last thing is that, the way Joel is voted out, and this is something I want to point out, older survivor versus modern survivor, is he gets the, and whether it's fair or not, he was sexist, the girls didn't like him, he got voted out. But to the show's credit, they actually give him a lot of dignity on the way out. He gets a whole respectful moment and like a moment of silence. And like, they do not give him the buffoon music. They don't do like, like they would do with Roger Sexton in a couple seasons. So to the show's credit, they were even though they gave him that storyline, they still didn't mock him and try to humiliate him on the way out. They just tried to come up with a narrative. So that's something I always give credit to these early seasons, that they treated their players with respect at least as much as they could. And now, Jay, have any final thoughts on Joel? No. Uh, Joel is one where, like, I always wonder how he would do if he was on another season with other people. Because... You know, as as you said, he was desperately trying to be alpha male in this group. And I think that he is alpha in, in a lot of ways. Stay alpha, bro. But it's like he, you know, the, the question always is, is you know, when you have people who are alphas, like a Boston Rob or like a, like a Tom Westman or something like that, there's also a likability with them as well. You know, where like they're alpha and people default to maybe alpha males maybe more than they should, but also they, they either make sense or they get along with people or they relate with people. You know, there's a whole thing about, you know, just how well Rob can relate to people, especially the last, the later couple of times he's played. Whereas like with Joel, he tried to be alpha and it also seems like he just didn't rub a whole bunch of people the right way. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, was it this group? Was it just this season? Was it, I, I don't know. Like, if you put him on another season, does he succeed more with a different group of people? Or is he always just going to kind of, you know, be that where they're like, oh, I don't know. We got to get rid of him. I think he would have fit in great on Toggy. Yeah, I think you switch him and Dirk, and I think it's a very different dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think let's also remember that he seemed to be one of the most vocal people to play ball when it comes to the Alliance game. So, I mean, it all comes down to whether Rich, Sue, and Kelly would want to work with him, but there's a chance that if he's on Toggy, he could be number four in the Alliance instead of Rudy, and then a lot of stuff changes from there. Yeah, and I don't want to overstate Joel's importance to the season. He's a pre-merge boot, so obviously he wasn't that important. But when I hear these arguments, you see a lot of modern fan base saying, oh, nobody in Borneo understood alliances. They were, they were dumb. They didn't really get how that worked. I always bristle because I think of Joel. Like, Joel was trying his best, just no one listened to him. So, like, it's not that only one person was smart. It's just you have to have the right dynamic for it to work, and Joel's just didn't work. Because, as you said, we're in this stretch here, this this J for Jenna kind of stretch. And... You know, you talked about how it's so compelling, and it's compelling after the Pagong, the Pagongi, because it's like we're emerging that this is what Survivor is. Survivor is forming a voting block and using a voting block, right? But we didn't know that at the time. And the fact that, you know, people talked about it before, and then people talked about it, and they talked about it in a sense of like, uh, it seems kind of shady, but I guess that's what we're going to do, right? And it's like, you know, the fact that, you know, they were unsure about it and they did it sort of, you know, goes along the lines of how we as an audience kind of said they're they're cheating, they're breaking the game, they're exploiting a loophole, they're doing some sort of thing. Whereas, you know, so so it's the whole like, oh, they didn't figure out the alliance. It's like plenty of people figured out the alliance. The question was not, can you make a voting alliance? The question is, should you make a voting mm-hmm. alliance? Yes. Is that what it should be? And it, and and so that's more the the correct question. So I think when people are like People in, in Borneo, and especially the Pagongs, didn't understand alliances. It's like they understood, but they just chose not to. Yeah, and we're and we're about to get into that with Sean, who I think is a key example of someone who had a strategy. It's just his strategy reached outside of the camera, and as a result, influenced the strategy in a different way than I think outright the Tagis were doing. Yeah, and one other thing I wanted to add is the whole what Jay just said is that not. Uh, not that they don't understand alliances, but should you? There's another key variable that I never hear get brought up enough is that the really variable is when should I bring up an alliance? Because if you bring it up too early, now you're the schemer and now people want to target you. So it was not as simple as, oh, everyone go out there and the first person to come up with an alliance wins because you don't want to broach this to the wrong person who already may be in an alliance because now you are the one being targeted. Oh, he's a schemer. He's got to go. So it was very interesting dance in the early days where you knew you had to be an alliance, but you didn't want to be the one to suggest it because you could be in trouble real quick. Mm. All right. Episode seven, the merger here. (laughs) Although right from the start, Propes is editorializing in the comments. And again, we give him crap for that in later seasons, but he's doing it here in the first season where he says last week on survivor, rich was flexing his voting alliance muscles. No mention of the other three people in the Toggy Four, just Rich. Just uh, if people so if people wonder why it looks like Rich was the only one playing, it's because Probes is already trying to steer you in that direction. I also like Jeff's pondering here. Yes, yeah, so many um, questions. About, <laughs> so many questions. What will this new tribe call themselves? Like, oh, we're dying to know. Where will they live? <laughs> will there be a snake cam? <laughs> um, Who is the pervert? Which, <laughs> will Greg's balls be hanging out? 
Well, I, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it when we actually get to the naming of the tribe. I like as old school and as um, you know, a purist that I could be in a lot of ways. The fact that we have to like name our, our merge tribe still is one of the dumbest things ever. And I'll agree with Rich on this. He'll bring this up at the end of the season, you know, about how Ratana, that was the stupidest thing he's ever heard because it does not really make sense when they merge and become individual why you need a tribe name. So that's my take for the day. Well, yeah, because it's, it's, it's Jeff asking, like, what world were they now create? So again, in this first season especially, they're still focused on, like, forming a society, right? And this is, like, two societies coming together. And that's why this episode feels so special in a number of ways. It's arguably one of the most important episodes in Survivor history, if not the most important episode, but it also is something that had never been done before up to this point. These are these two groups who maybe heard rumors about each other and maybe interacted someone in challenges, but never actually talk with one another. And now it's like a very rare opportune moment where these people are living as one. So I could understand in the moment. And I guess Ratana is okay on the scale of like, you know, the Robin Amber stuffed animal to, like, actual Lex's fire and water Moto Maji in Africa in terms of merge tribe names. Well, don't forget the producer said, you have to name it something indigenous. <laughs> so there was a rule. They could have just named it Snake for all they cared. Yeah, though I think we'll also talk about uh, some producer, not manipulation, but producers clearly showing their hands here with the fact that oh jenna and sean are going on this mission there's no camera footage as to them being chosen for this but don't worry they were the ones selected for no particular reason to go on this overnight stay in a bed oh i got a lot to say about this okay let's let's wait, wait hold on hold on, hold on. Okay, I, I, I want to chime in and just basically say yes uh i think that you know when people uh, talk crap about the survivor historians first of all you're probably right on most things second of all um, you know, I think that a lot of us, you know, especially us, you know, old school sort of recanters here sort of talk about, you know, oh, you know, we love, you know, the, the, the fallen comrades challenge and oh, we love a uh, rites of passage and we love, you know, all these sorts of things. And, and there are things that, you know, modern survivor doesn't do that. I wish that they did that were part of uh, survivor traditions, like maybe have an intro and, you know, things like that. But, but I think you're right. The whole, like, you know, they really were with these concepts of like, you're, you're creating a merger. You're becoming a new tribe. You need to have a new tribe name and a tribe flag. And it's like over the years you could see, I mean, even as you said with rich, like sort of, you know, shitting on it at the end of the season. And you could see how people with their, with their dumb names that they come up with later and, you know, Merlonio and blah, blah, blah. You could tell that this is not really important to the people out there. And so, you know, even for me, who who's who's someone who loves old school survivors like sometimes some some traditions can go away and it's okay this one is one you know what i mean like this can go away like it's kind of fun and unique to go back and go oh look they named themselves baramundi and you know all that sort of stuff but it's like who cares you know it's just it's the two tribes at the beginning we associate them you know we a lot of these early tribe names and i think in in some seasons we do associate by names you know uh ogakor and kucha and stuff like that but a lot of times you're just like oh it was the the blue tribe and the and the and the, and the yellow tribe or you know you, you you sort of just know the buffs and like the, really what's important is who's on what tribe rather than what's their name what's their what's their background story what's their motivation <laughs> can i defend this a little bit psychologically I mean, you can't. I, under, I understand the psychology behind it, but keep yeah, going. I just want to point this out to people. I know you already probably have figured this out, but if to uh, the younger listeners who may have not thought about this too much, if you're producing this TV show 
It's really been a hanging around movie for six weeks. You have the Toggies hanging around with each other, the Pagongs hanging around with each other. There's some strategy, but it's really incidental. It's not that big a deal. It's really just you want to see this group together, and you just like hanging out with them for an hour. Now they get to a turning point in the show where the entire show changes, and if you are a producer, what you want is for these two people to all become equals because now they have to become a new hanging out group and it is very essential they do not just stay in their clique of five and five. That's bad TV. Mm. That is not what they wanted. So psychologically, you make them come up with a new name, then they will stop referring themselves as Toggies and Pagongs. And it's like the producers, in a way, steering them into thinking themselves as one, which is what they really want. So that's my only defense on this. I mean, you're right. You know what I mean? Like, there, there's a lot of reasons why. But as you can see, once alliance take place, especially... In, in in Australian Outback, you know what I mean? Like, can you tell me that that Barramundi tribe, you know, <laughs> psychologically turned into one yeah. at the end of that merge? The producers were trying their best. That's all I can say. They, they, they could see the pitfalls. They didn't want it to happen, and they were doing all they could. They tried. <laughs> okay, so we open the famous Gretchen episode, one of, again, as Mike said, maybe the most important episode in Survivor history. This is a biggie. This is, I, this is one I can remember where I was when I watched this episode. This is how big this one was, where we open up with Jeff Yada Yada's over the fact that the tribes chose ambassadors who will be visiting the other tribes' camp. <laughs> Quote, unquote, <laughs> chose. Yeah, so... Okay, Jenna is chosen for the Pagongs to go over to the Toggies and talk to them. Yes, she Sean, was. Yeah, Sean is chosen to go over to the, the Pagongs from the Toggies and talk to them. And all I will say is if you've ever read the book The Stingray, the Peter Lance book I talk about a lot, which talks about the manipulation in the first season, this is one of those things that Stacy and Peter Lance harped on all the time. They're like, why the fuck would Toggy pick Sean, the idiot, to go represent them in negotiations? There is no chance whatsoever. And that I've read, and this was the allegation in the book, that Richard was chosen because he's clearly the one that should be go over there making decisions. And the producer said, no, it has to be Sean. So the producers were trying to break up this alliance while at the same time specifically picking the only two young people who would probably hook up drunk in a tent. Yeah, at least in Amazon they had the formality to be like, pick your youngest members. You know, they were able to yeah. disguise it in that. Here's just like, we're going to play a little matchmaker. And as you can imagine, it does not pair out in that regard because Jenna Lewis is like, what the hell are you doing, Dr. Sean? Stop being a horn dog right now. I, let me <laughs> paint this flag. Yeah, but Stacy alleges in that the Stingray book that the the Toggies were hopping mad that Sean was forced to go because they did not trust him at all. He talked too much. He wasn't part of the alliance. There's no way this guy should be allowed to give our secrets to the Bagongs, and they were furious about it. So this is one of those underrated, underknown manipulation scandals in the first season that these were not the players that were picked to to go. Is I that can't the first? I'm that. curious. I yeah. cannot believe that. I was going to say that's is that the first you guys have heard of that? I had, yeah, I totally. Yeah, it seemed legit to me. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't. I don't know that I'd heard that. Exp- I mean, it kind of sounds familiar, but you know, there's so much of this in this, these early seasons about like what you actually saw on the show, what you read in this book, what you heard on like. <laughs> there's so much, you know. There's a whole. There's Survivor Borneo, or uh, sorry, Survivor, and then there's you know all the other stuff around it that's adjacent and, and yeah. written afterwards. It makes complete sense to me just looking at the, the retreat that we're going to get to later. Like, it is decked out like a beach date. Like, it's very clear, 
what they were going for here. And look no further than, like, the Greg and Colleen stuff that they were building up for the first six episodes as well. Like, they're making a TV show. They know that this romance aspect is something that's interesting that would not necessarily be thought of when it comes to making personal relationships on an island. And so I think they're going to create the situation in hell with these two groups coming together. This could be a new wrinkle to throw in as well. If we have an island boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet across different tribes, what's going to happen then when they fall under one Rachel, house? Exactly, you know? exactly. Will they, won't they? She she wasn't on the plane. They were on a break. Let's let's make it happen, people. And then they eventually did beat friends in the ratings. So I guess they got the last laugh in that regard. Oh my god! Yes. All right. Can we be off topic anymore? Sorry, I had to do a Chandler there. Okay, so oh sure he does Chandler, but I do Janice, and no one cares. Fine, whatever. See you later. Your voice does not get to that. Your, Janice your is voice psychotic. Is... <laughs> your voice is too soothing, Jay. <laughs> okay that was sexy janice <laughs> all right so oh oh if people want their trivia uh, it is alleged that richard was the one the toggies wanted to send which makes sense and obviously the one that pagans would have wanted to send is gretchen and that in the book clearly, alleges those those are the ones they were picked and, the and clearly said, those no. two weren't going to bang and um <laughs> And also, it kind of explains why kind of Pagong is kind of so pissy about the whole thing. Like, what's taking it so long? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> okay, so some good moments here where the two ambassadors, quote-unquote ambassadors, go to each other's camp. I love where Kelly has to come lead Jenna to the Toggy camp. And Kelly says, Rich is a sweetheart. He's very compassionate. He's naked a lot, though. And Jenna replies, goes, um, okay. <laughs> yes. That's your, it's funny how many times they talk about how compassionate, open-hearted, and gentle Richard is, which is not the way most fans would describe him, but that's how he's described to the Pagongs. Which is so interesting, considering that, again, like, the next few episodes, the Pagongs are just going to be dumping on Richard for being just so, like, catty and cocky. But it's such, I mean, this episode from the get-go, and again, this speaks towards the excellent storytelling of Borneo, like, once you know how this episode is going to end, this is like a freight train. Like, just look at the way these camps are organized, where Tagi is so well-organized. It has a canopied kitchen, and it's got hammocks, and Pagong has their shit thrown everywhere. Literally, they have not changed the latrine since they got there, which sounds like a disaster. And their big, like, buying point for Sean is chew on this sugar cane that already exists over at Tagi that they basically use as refuse because they don't even need it. Yeah, this is a great back and forth scene. We cut from Toggy to Pagong, and Toggy is amazing, and Rich has fish, and they get the happy, fun Survivor Amazon music. And we cut back to Pagong as they're literally just chewing on wood. <laughs> and Sean's like, Yeah, we have this at our camp. We don't eat this, though. <laughs> it's a, yeah, tale of two cities. Although there's a scene that's cut out here, and I know Burnett mentioned in the book that I have to say, just because I loved Sue's never ending bloodlust to kill everybody at all times. Oh yeah. So so apparently uh Sue had a had a sort of a read that Jenna is somebody who sort of prides herself on her looks. So mm-hmm. as soon as Jenna got to the camp, like the very first thing Sue Hawk tells her is, Your tits are gone and like that really crushed Jenna and Jenna's sort of uh rebound in a moment. She's like, Well, uh, if I s if I'm gonna have to live here so I can, you know, eat a lot and get them back, but still like Sue just cutting someone down the very first time she meets somebody. That is your icebreaker. Your tits are gone. 
Well, listen, considering the, what did, between that and Richard's top three things are that he's compassionate and he's naked all the time. Like, I don't know what impression Jedi is getting of Toggy at this point. I just like thinking this is like, that's like the warm Toggy greeting. We say it to everyone. Yeah, it's like our version of saying hi. It's our aloha. Yes, it's universal Borneo language. Yes. We don't chew, chew on sugarcane anymore. We just insult the shit out of you. Yeah, that's how we feed. So Survivor Borneo watched in a modern lens is now a race to see which all the players that can get canceled as fast as possible. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, so that's Sue's greeting of cutting down Jenna's self-esteem immediately. And uh, this is where Jenna sits down with the Toggies and and they're like, tell us all the rumors you've heard about us, because apparently there's a, some kind of, you know, pigeon. Uh, what is that? The Pigeon Express of the uh, carrier pigeons carrying um, info back and forth. And Jenna has heard, A, that you guys are plotting an alliance against us. That's the big one. <laughs> so, apparently they all know this. This is common knowledge. I don't know who's telling them this. Well, what's great is that, like, let's say someone else was there. And, like, not even just Richard and Gretchen. But, like, let's say it's, like, Richard and Jenna. And then Jenna says to Richard, like, I hear you guys are plotting an alliance. You know, Richard would be, like, schmoozing her, like, oh, no, hey, but do you want in? Or blah, 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 one of those sorts of things where it's, like, you know, Sean's, like, no, what are, what are you talking about? And it's like, oh, Sean. <laughs> and Sean believes it. That's the thing. Sean, I do not believe, could lie to someone to save his life. Right. He is so naive. No, no, it's genuine, right? But it's yeah. just like, boy, wrong person. <laughs> well, I don't know, because I think to a certain extent, like, my opinion on Sean has always been that he knew what was happening to a certain extent, but he felt like if he acknowledged it, then he would be complicit in it. And as we talked about, there were career circumstances for him that extended beyond survivor and he did not want to come across as the bad guy and so i do think that like he obviously like he got blindsided with the dirk vote i think he had to know that there were at least these four people were probably doing stuff not so behind his back but i think him acknowledging it would make it mean like okay you know even though i'm not a part of it i'm letting it slide and therefore that makes me just as bad in it and so i'm gonna play dumb and ignorant about it and do this alphabet strategy so my hands are clean of blood and therefore i can leave the show and proclaim myself as the hero of borneo and then lap up all the appearance fees no totally 100 percent. i sean is like a lot of really smart people i know they don't think anybody else could be smart too he had no idea people were onto what he was doing Okay, we'll, we'll talk about more Sean in a second, but we do have, there's a long discussion here of ethics, the ethics of alliances. We're going to go back and forth to a lot of characters here. And uh, first, Sue says, Sean is, the reason Sean's not an alliance is because Sean is dumb. It's one of my favorite quotes of the whole uh, thing. I it's love it. so, you know, and, and I don't, I don't have all of, you know, Sue's characteristics and whatnot, but and, and and those of you who have listened to this podcast, I can get wordy and sort of this that. But sometimes when I'm in a in a position where I'm instructing or or something along those lines, I'm very blunt. Like I just say blah 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 and be done. And I just love the bluntness of it. It's like Sean's not in the alliance because Sean is dumb. And it's like well, okay, well that answers that. Well done. And she'll she'll say it to his face too, which I love. Yeah, she, well she's gonna say like you have no balls, you're you're an idiot, but like. Sue would definitely be like, uh, Rebecca Borman was uh, a contestant on Survivor Cook Islands. <laughs> okay, so the Toggies are sitting there talking around and they say, you know, Jenna doesn't want to be an alliance. She wants to be a strong young mom and a role model for her kids. And Rich mocks her. Richard's like, win, win Survivor. Here, there, that's how you be a role model for your kids. 
Yeah, and Rich, has, Rich has such an interesting opinion here, right? He says, like, I consider myself extraordinarily ethical and moral, and this has absolutely nothing to do with this. Uh, and this is actually, it's a really interesting, like, Rich, this is, from the get-go, Richard has sort of, like, personified himself as not necessarily an active participant. Like, he is personifying himself as the kid with the ant farm to a certain extent. Like, he says, going to say early on, the merge will set up a whole another set of interpersonal dynamics that'll be fun for me to watch. And so, like, that shows the cockiness of the persona that he built up, right? That, like, he is so just adamant that he is going to win that he's like, I don't need to worry right now because I'm going to observe everything and know that I'm going to stick around to see the entire aftermath of it. Yeah, I want to read that whole speech just because I think this is very important. Now, Richard is one of these players. People love to boil down into one, you know, trait. Oh, he's he's the mastermind or, you know, post all-stars. Oh, he was the sex offender. Like there's everyone loves to boil him down into just one thing. That's the one thing they do with him. But he's way more complicated than that. And this speech in particular, I have to read just because I've always found this fascinating. There's this exact speech in this episode. Richard says, Sean is ethically against any sort of an alliance. And I hear Gretchen is similar on the other tribe. I don't get it. I consider myself extraordinarily moral and ethical. This has absolutely nothing to do with this. It sounds like sheer stupidity to me to not join one and just hope that nobody else does. I just giggle and I'm like, okay. Like, I just think that's such a three-dimensional, fascinating way to talk about it. And he's not wrong. I agree with everything he says there. Yeah, I mean, you you hear this echoed in the other Alliance members, too, right? Like, out, Kelly outright says, maybe for the first time in reality TV history, I didn't come here to make friends. Mm-hmm. Rudy, Rudy says, like, I've seen the light. If you want to win this money, you got to get a little dirty. So it seems to be a mentality that I think is pervading at least the Toggies. The Pagongs are going to realize it in a couple of episodes as well. But, yeah, I think I think Rich is not necessarily coming across as, like, cutthroat here. Because he's saying, like... I'm a very, you know, moral and ethical person here as well, but that has nothing to do with the game that we're playing right now. And the moment you think you that is the case, you are playing a losing game. And I'm not sure if you, if you mentioned it, Mario, or not, but then also during this time, it's also when he talks about Jenna saying, like, well, Jenna, like, you want to be a single mom, go out and do it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. like that's... You What's know, stopping you? Right, like, you want to... You want to... You wanna, you want to make your daughters proud, we'll go win. That will make your daughters proud, which I think is definitely, that's something that takes a while for the show really to get to the point where most players are on that same level of thinking. Yeah, the one thing in particular with Richard that I like to point out is he plays one of the cleanest games in Survivor history. I mean, it's easier in the first season because it's not as complicated the gameplay. He never really screws anybody out. Like, he doesn't really unethically destroy anybody he doesn't talk shit about most people to the extent that sue and other people do he plays a very clean game for the most part he's very loyal to his allies when he gets rid of rudy later he does it with a loophole true but he's not Mm -hmm. outwardly breaking any promises and like the worst you could say about richard this first season is that he's immature and that's really about it otherwise he's right he is extraordinarily ethical in the way he's playing this and that's the thing he got crapped on you know, for several reasons, we'll get into them. I don't, some were probably realistic, some weren't. But to say he was like an evil villain, an asshole, and immoral is completely wrong. He's nothing like that in this season. All right, so this is where the Toggy Four is celebrating, and Sue says, "I'm so glad I'm your t- I'm on your team, Richard, because we're you know cutthroat." And they high five, and they agree. And this is very important. Here is something that has been lost to Survivor history that you have to know this season to remember this. 
Their target is not Gretchen. Their target is Greg. Mm-hmm. All right. So now the ambassadors leave and they all go to their their the sand spit, right? This is the, the romantic dinner. Yeah, where Jeff Probst even says, wow, we're off to a good start. Little kiss. I like that. <laughs> I wrote that down, too. I like that. Yeah, like modern day Jeff Probst eking a little bit with like the awkward questions where you could tell that he was prompted by production. Like, okay, you also need to like push this romantic date happening. So like Sean gives Jenna like a cordial kiss on the cheek and Jeff makes it out to be like they went to third base. <laughs> and then they discuss the bases, which, <laughs> which I love. How, how do the bases work? I'm not sure about this. Wait, is I this... just have different here, Sean. So awkward talking about the bases, like and just talking and talking and talking, and like she's clearly uncomfortable. He doesn't pick up on any of this. Oh, such a good moment where Sean's like, "Yeah, I don't. I admittedly don't give off a good first impression." Cut to him being like, "Yeah, so uh, second base. That's when you get inside the shirt, and then third base, <laughs> <laughs> like warm apple pie." But like, what was that? Do you think that was like was that his like warm up pitch? Like, how, how long into the conversation was that? Because it could be anywhere from, like, the first two minutes to, like, two hours in of awkward conversation that he brings that up. Oh, yeah. Again, I, I know a lot of Sean's. If, if he knows a lot about a topic, he will have to tell you, even if it's not appropriate, just because he wants you to know as much as he knows. So who knows what led into the base discussion? Other than, Paul, you understand the bases, right? And make sure. I do now, thanks to, you know, I said Survivor teaches me a lot of things over the years, and thanks to Dr. Sean, I was a pretty knowledgeable fourth grader. <laughs> Good. As, as Sean slides headfirst into Jenna. But yeah, so they have their little uh, camp meeting, they come up with a new name, a new flag, and <laughs> as we made fun of earlier, they, they had to name the the tribe, something uh, indigenous to the region, and they name it Rattan, which is the wood, and Sean added an A on it for a little flair. (laughs) Zazz. Yes. (laughs) But I should point out, Jenna can even see the producers are trying to set up something romantic, and it's never going to happen. There's no spark, because Sean is dumb. Even though, I mean, they, they do end up housing, like, four bottles of wine. And I was worried for a second when I saw the two open beds there. I'm like, is this going to be Exile Island all over again with the really wet bed? But luckily, they were able to, like, take shelter in that tent. Though, apparently, uh, they were very aware of the fact that even if the, the snake cams were gone, apparently they bugged the shit out of the tent. Uh, just in case anything should happen. Uh, Burnett, says th- Burnett says this in the book, interestingly enough. Sean and Jenna would tell friends and children and parents about the perfect wonder of it all, but mostly they would hold the evening close to their hearts forever, counting it alongside wedding days and children's births and the time they lost their virginity as one of their top ten most what? wonderful experiences. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> so not true and so weird. <laughs> I was so, so alarmed. Like, okay, you had me for a little while, and then we got to third base here, Burnett, and I just <laughs> he just completely took me out of the park. <laughs> that sounds like Jay putting it into a play. That's it's impressive. <laughs> I just uh, and I love it again because he again he romanticizes this thing that is completely platonic. That like oh this cannot be like it's wet, it's miserable, and this guy is trying to hit on poor Jenna. And Burnett's like, put it right up there with her wedding and her the time she lost her virginity. Someone should email Jenna and ask if it still ranks in her top three life moments. That sand spit meeting with Sean. <laughs> <laughs> 
wow, I, I forgot that part of the book. <laughs> it's, again, Mark Burnett is a very interesting writer. It's been a very fun thing to read for a number of ways. <laughs> Between Greg's balls and losing your virginity, Ricky, the top ten of moments for everyone. <laughs> Sean C. later found purchase that night. No, it didn't. They didn't even sleep together. All right. So here we go. So the negotiations go for 24 hours and and all the other tribe members are sitting there like, how long does it take to decide what beach we're going to live on? What the hell? And like Pagong even stays up and saves her food. Like they're pissed. Yeah. I mean, and then imagine Jenna coming back the next day and being like, hey, guys, we're back. Great to be here. By the way, pack everything up in five minutes. We need to leave our home immediately. Oh, yeah, but we do get a Nalia Dennis memorial moment here where Jenna goes on and on about all the food they had and the delicious butter sauce on everything, to which even Greg starts to get pissed. He's like, shut up. Wasn't it more Sean they were mad at? Well, it starts with Jenna, but Sean pipes in as well, but it's really her starting. It's her friends. Yeah, it's when they go pick up the pagongs and say, we're all moving to Toggy. Yeah, and they have, I mean, this is, again, this is a really interesting sequence when you know what's going to happen that like this post merge is the death of Bagong and it gets foreshadowed right here. Right. We're like, we get this slow-mo shot of the Pagong flag waving and like the still shots of the things that they left behind. And even Greg, like feeling very sentimental about the material possessions and the emotional issues that they left behind, like knowing what's going to happen to this tribe, the death knell is already starting to sound for these five people. Yeah, although the music here is top-notch. I love this piece of music. I don't know the name, what it's called. It's on the soundtrack. This, like, the last moments of Pagong, this really, you know, sad musical playing. You see all the sad shots. It's a very emotional scene. You see Gretchen crying, Greg crying. It's, like, really the end of an era of Survivor. And they don't even realize it yet. They just think it's, you know, the, they, don't, they won't see their friends and their beach where they landed and their memories of BB and Ramona. But, like, they have no idea what they're in for. But, yeah, this is a... Very touching moment in a very emotional episode. Although, like Mike said, if you haven't watched this episode in a while, it's 30 minutes of them just prepping for this merge and the ambassadors. Like, there's nothing going on. It's all character moments just hanging out with these people. It's really interesting. Yeah, to the point where after the immunity challenge, I think we go immediately to tribal council after that. So that, again, that just shows the unique structure of this episode that for as much as we've been built up, as Jeff said, like these two tribes are becoming one. They have a new name with an A at the end for pizzazz. That doesn't happen until halfway through the episode. All right, so let's have the two tribes merging. They go over to Toggy Beach, and now we get a whole new fun set of interpersonal dynamics, including rich swimming out to greet them like a like lotso bear in toy story three <laughs> and then uh greg meeting sue for the first time to which he says a boy named sue loud strong with an accent that will drive you up the wall yeah and this is the interesting thing is that burnett talks about this but you're, you're see you're gonna see it especially next episode but a little bit here in this next scene that as much as greg might have like really picked up himself as the leader of Pagong with his like young carefree attitude that bristles greatly with the Toggies, especially Sue Hawk. And you can imagine that, you know, he is able to, he tries to curry favor with Richard, but you can imagine why one reason why Greg was, you know, the first member of the jury here and got booted so early is because unlike people like Jenna and Colleen, nobody was vouching for him because Sue, probably the most vocal member of that alliance, just disliked him so much. So what are some of the fun uh, dynamics here of new characters? We have, uh, let's see, any other fun ones? I know Rudy is just pissed at everybody because the shelter is smaller now. 
Yeah, he calls it a, a pain in the ass. Uh, Colleen says, t- talks how, sh- uh, says that Sean sometimes says interesting things and sometimes you have to tune him out for a while. <laughs> I, I love her description of that. It's like so accurate of like someone going kind of like me when I'm recording this podcast with you guys and Mario will just go on and on and on and I can zone out for a little bit and then I come back in and go, oh, he's saying something interesting. It's kind of like Sean. No response from Mario. No, I'll, I'll hold it back. I'll come back to that later. <laughs> Following up his pitch perfect conversation with Jenna about the bases. Now Sean is talking about how you know, it's weird that Hot Woman ranks sense of humor above looks, but I know guys who are good-looking with no personalities that still get a lot of girls. Like, Sean, read the room! Stop it! <laughs> okay, so we have the uh, shelter collapsing here. Gretchen tries to take charge, and the whole thing collapses. And it's there's a lot of interesting uh, gender dynamics here where all the men hang out and play cards and bond with each other, and the women all immediately go to work on the shelter to fix it. And we get a great quote here from Colleen that I love. She says, it's how men and women relate. Women work together. We're always a little bit competitive in everything we do. You have to prove yourself to the other women. Men can just sit down together and talk for hours and walk away friends, which I think is a really fascinating quote because it's it's true. You see that exactly happen here. The, the women are all trying to outwork ethic each other right from the start. Yeah, though it does, it does bring them together for like, you know, it, it gave Colleen and Jenna like, maybe a misgiving as to, oh, this even though Greg's gone, I don't think a woman's going home for a while. Uh, and so, you know, I think that is like a, a small little subplot. Even Rudy worries to a certain point about like a gender breakdown. But it's also a great moment for Jervis, who Jervis is totally fine with being painted as lazy because he is totally making bonds with the Pagong, uh, with the Toggy guys here with his deck of cards, just dealing hands the entire time and schmoozing them to make a good first impression. Yeah, although the, the one takeaway I remember is that Greg comes over and she's like, oh, I, or he's like, I want to go fish. So he grabs the spear and he can't catch anything. And so Richard just kind of laughs. He's like, well, that just ups my value even more that even the wonderful Greg can't catch a fish. So Richard's just uh, amused by these Pagongs coming in and trying to do what they're doing. But the, the Toggies are just licking their chops. They know the Pagongs are toast. Yeah, in my opinion, the most interesting dynamic is the Greg versus Rich thing. It's this idea of, like, these are the two most... This is the most intelligent person on each tribe. Like, shaking hands, simultaneously eyeing each other, and knowing that the other person is probably their biggest competition left in the game. You know, Greg says that Rich is clever. He thinks he's very clever. He's someone who, you know, will selectively choose what he says. Uh, You know, Rich is playing a big game. Richard is going to acknowledge this as well, really, next episode. So, again, it's going to be an arc that lasts two episodes. And Burnett writes that, you know, Greg, as we found out a few episodes ago, basically slept every night out in the jungle and built a nest. But Greg, reading the room, knows that he had to curry favor with the Toggies ASAP. Uh, You know, Kelly was off with the women. Rudy seemed like a dead end. Sue seemed like a deader end. So he settled with Rich, and apparently the very first night he did not sleep in the jungle was the night of the merge where Greg ends up cuddled up at Richard's feet, basically, already kissing his ass, hoping that'll help him stay another day. And that was also one of the top ten moments in Greg's life, next to the virginity and the marriage. (laughs) And he still talks about it and weeps openly. Okay, let's go to Paul's favorite scene as a 10-year-old. Well, they all stay up at late at night and talk sex stories. You know, it's one of those things that when, even when I rewatch it now, I was like, there's a lot of that I did not understand. <laughs> like, for, <laughs> you didn't understand what a two-on-one situation like, was in a three-way? I, I, I really feel like I did not really get what they really were talking about until much later on. 
Although it does lead me to a question. Paul, have you ever turned down a two-on-one opportunity? <laughs> what does Sean say? I was scared. What did he say? He was uh, scared out of my mind. <laughs> You're not answering the question, Paul. Well, I was 10 and I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> I wonder what base that is for Sean. Was he scared because it's not on the bases? <laughs> That's like shortstop. It's in between bases. I mean, to be fair, I think Paul's attitude is best represented in Rudy, who just walks away from the entire thing because he didn't want to talk about the sex stuff. It it, it, just, it reminds me a lot of the uh, those uh, Amazon scenes when they merged when they're merged and they're kind of you know talking about these crazy sex stories and stuff. So it's something that you don't really see that much on Survivor, but kind of adds to this feeling again of like this is reality TV. We're going to air everything, raw conversations, because unless that really fit into a narrative, like you don't really see. This kind of thing happened in, uh, you know, in Survivor really much, you know, after, besides like the, the sexed up Amazon season. Well, I do believe if I recall, this is the scene where Greg insinuates that he's gay to get Richard to like him a little better. No, that's so that's I feel like it's taken from this night, but it's actually yeah. shown in the next episode. Okay. It's one of these confusing things Borneo does where it gets like a really good scene of something and they divvy it up over five episodes. You don't know when it actually happened. <laughs> to the point where that Greg confessional I mentioned before about how he figured three out times. Like, yeah, yeah, three he times. Shows, he shows like three times over the course of the episode the exact same text, the exact same time. Richard keeps playing a big game. He's playing the biggest goddamn game ever. He keeps doing it for three full episodes. Okay, so here we go. We've gone through 45 minutes of this episode. This is just the tribes bonding and meeting and hanging out and the Toggies licking their chops because they know they're going to savage these poor Pagongs like the monitor lizard ate the chicken. But here we go. The last 15 minutes of the episode, um, people are talking that Rudy might go home first. He's grumpy. He's rude. He doesn't like all the people here. He kicked Gretchen in the head. <laughs> well, he was going to the head as well. So he, he had to he, – he, apparently, like, I guess he was just surrounded by all the pagongs. And because he got up so many times during the night because 72-year-old man, uh, he ended up just, like, stepping all over them all night. And they were wet, too, because the shelter was, like, only half built. Yeah. You guys forget I'm the old guy. You young guys might like all these girls crawling over you. To me, it's a pain in the ass. All right. So here we go. The first tree male underwater – or the uh, individual tree male – one of the least creative challenges in Survivor history, go down and hold your breath. The challenge literally lasts two minutes in the first round. Yeah, this is a, I mean, this is the first individual challenge. And yeah, so it's, it's a weird one to start off on. Also, I don't know, did you guys notice the music during this one? This like weird 80s synthesized crap that was playing <laughs> while they were holding their breath? It's on the soundtrack. It's a weird track. Yeah, they only use it in this challenge. It's like, I don't know, Russ Landau went new wave for like a hot second uh, to fill, to make holding your breath exciting. <laughs> okay, for people don't remember, Jeff pulls out the immunity necklace, which is still called the immunity talisman in the first episode, in the first season. And they go down underwater and whoever can hold your breath the longest gets advances to the second round, which is a horribly sexist challenge people pointed out even at the time because men usually have bigger lungs. And that is exactly how the challenge plays out. The five women go out first. And then Rudy, who I love this little detail, looks around to make sure all the girls are out first. And then he'll go up. He will not lose to a girl. <laughs> and then we get to the final three that go to the final round, which is Greg, Jervis, and Sean. And there's not much to say. It's very boring. This is a, the most simple challenge I've ever seen on Survivor. And what the second round is like a race. They have to swim underwater. And Greg and Sean... Uh, out last Jervis, who surprisingly cannot swim, as we learned earlier in the season. Yeah, but, and... but, he's, uh, but he's pretty good at holding his breath. Like, I think it's that thing where, like, you practice in the pool, 
and when you get in the ocean your mentality changes but it does seem like i could imagine that like this is the most pool like thing he has to do so jervis is totally fine but i mean it is interesting again looking at the sliding doors like greg was what six inches away from not winning that immunity challenge and assumingly mm-hmm. being the first person voted out of Ratana and not making the jury. And that changes a lot. If Sean, if Greg does not go home, uh, goes home first here. Right. Okay. Let, let's talk about it. We're going to delve into the, the last part of the episode here. Greg wins immunity. He saves himself again. All the discussion in this episode has been Greg has to go. He's too dangerous. He's sneaky. He's talented. He's athletic and Greg wins immunity. And so we, really go right to tribal council here, correct? There's like no discussion. Right. There's like a couple of interviews they play as it transitions right into tribal council. Okay. And uh, Greg gives us a quote here. You know, we will, is another confessional we will hear multiple times. If people are fear motivated and self-preservation, they'll band together, form alliances. He's like, if that happens, I just hope they vote me off really soon because that's not fun. And Oh, cool. Cool flying fish. He's distracted by a flying fish. It's a little moment in a very poignant speech. But what he says before that, they will chop up and use later in the episodes after this. Oh, this is still one of my favorite confessionals of all time because it is so I mean, you talk about the rawness. Literally, he gets distracted by a flying fish. For a second. But I love the editing of it where like you have all these dramatic fades up and fades down of confessionals. And it, it helps as well because we're going to get the most scattered vote in Survivor history. And so you want to find out why the Pagongs vote the way they do. So people are giving insight. And I love how they did the flying fish thing because it fades out on Greg being like, oh, yeah, let me get back to what I was saying. And it's just so <laughs> comic well done only greg could snap back to what he was thinking after just taking a second to acknowledge a cool flying fish okay i'm gonna race up to the ending here just because uh there's a lot to talk about so again there is not a single mention of gretchen as the target in this episode it's one of those things you gotta figure out later what was actually going on and this is why it's one of those moments that really caught survivor fans off guard they go right to tribal council, and you know, everyone's talking about we want to vote with our conscience. Although there's a wonderfully subtle shot of a snake eating a rat that they throw in there. I mm-hmm. kind of forgot about that. And we go to tribal council, and there's like people say, oh, there's no conflict yet. And uh, the Gretchen says, you know, the strategy's changed. We want to vote out the strong people. And, and Kelly, I think, says everyone's so nice right now. It's kind of fake. It's like it's just, there's, there's no issues. And uh, Sean, of course, who will forever open his, his mouth and stick his foot in it, says, you know, with 10 people, there's still room to not play ultra strategically just yet. <laughs> I vote on who I want to hang around. He goes, I don't think a Tagi versus Pagong bloodlust will occur tonight or bloodbath. And they go up to vote and bam, here is the moment where Survivor stops being the first six episodes of Survivor and starts being the 7 through 12, where all of a sudden Gretchen is blindsided in a really weird, as Jay said, four to one 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 vote. I mean, it's also so interestingly done in that, you know, we see a lot of these voting confessionals. Uh, Greg votes for Jenna, I think, still sort of bringing in some Pagong baggage as much as he's talked about leaving the emotional issues behind. Gretchen votes for Rudy because she wants to play the game with him the least. Colleen votes for Rich, just saying overconfident. Uh, Jenna is still getting revenge for the cow comment, says Moo. Sean brings out the alphabet strategy, but whose voting confessionals do we not see any of the people who voted against Gretchen? And so again, if you're looking at sort of like this whodunit mystery, I think that it is masterfully done that we see the motives why literally everybody else does this. And so that gut punch of Gretchen really hits you in so many ways because you didn't see this coming either, just like the Pagongs and Sean. 
Well, and I, I think the, the Gretchen vote just really does such a, a kick to the stomach because like had they had they voted off Greg like they had planned to, had he not won immunity, like yeah, there might have been some of the same fallout of like, okay, they've they were strategic about these votes, but like there was so much more of an easier case for people to to vote for Greg because he was an oddball because there were all these other reasons why you could come up with it. Like for Gretchen to go and then for the Alliance from here on out to say in at tribal councils, like, Oh, I vote, I vote up people. I don't like, I kick out people. I don't want to work with. It just didn't add up with what this vote actually was. So I think that it's really important that, 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 you know, how, what a out of the blue this vote was for, for Gretchen. One thing I want to point out, I want to get Jay's thoughts on this in a second, but one thing that's really important that I had forgotten until I watched this episode this afternoon, there is no music in this tribal council. They do the old, if you've seen the show 24, the silent clock, the silent countdown, when a big character dies or it's a real emotional moment, they do not fade out with the clock ticking. They do the silent clock just because it's it's something memorable. This is the first episode in Survivor history. There is no music played during the voting. It's very quiet. You just hear the ambient sounds, and that's it. And it's very eerie. It's like a whole different story they're trying to tell with this episode. They're letting you know, this is kind of a horror movie. Something bad is about to happen. Hang on. Yeah, this episode is just... Yeah, it's it's even like you like you watching it as many times as you've seen it, like you still don't see it coming. Like mm-hmm. it just it just the way it hits you. It's just it's it's very unique in that way. This this episode is so well crafted, and I think that's a thing that you know we're trying to tell you, the listener. You know, with Mike talking about how we don't get the Toggy Alliance uh, confessionals as they're voting. You know, there is this non-music like they they put so many subtle things in there that sort of help drive this narrative home. And it's one of those things that that is a part of cinema or, or, or television in that medium. You know, I do I do a lot of theater and theater has got a lot of different tells and things to kind of uh, signal like normalcy to the audience. Um, there's a there's a, a, a group of people that I watch on YouTube who who talk about movies and stuff like that and in some of their reviews someone talks about how like in one of the movies they didn't shadow a cgi character correctly and they're like you know that there's something wrong with this scene but maybe you can't you can't verbalize it out loud but your brain knows something's wrong your brain caught it and that's sort of what that's the craftsmanship that's going into this episode they're playing with all these sort of things and maybe you don't catch that there's no music you know, in, in this sort of build up here, maybe you don't, but your brain notices something not quite along with the pattern and it just sort of sets you a little off. And so, you know, it's, it's like a Goya painting. It's just kind of dialed a little bit to the weird section and you're sort of going off of that. And, and, and that's the sort of stuff that, that is just makes this, these opening seasons so masterful. Yeah. And again, that's the one thing I just cannot overstate enough is that this is the moment in Survivor history when people learned this is not the show you think you're watching. And that's like Jay said, everything's a little askew off to the left. The whole show changes. Everything you thought you saw the first six weeks does not matter. This is a horribly unethical game. And to drive that point further home, this is the statement that I always write. I always tell people this was the first time in Survivor history someone was voted out and it wasn't their fault. They did nothing wrong. All they were voted out for was they were a a threat to somebody. 
And a lot of the audience did not know that was really going to be a possibility yet. Yeah. They, like Gretchen, you know, again, talks about it a little bit at Tribal Council, but it's not really an idea that's circulated a lot around. Like, you know, people are targeting Greg because he's strong, but this is the first time that this individual game is, is happening. And so when you hear Gretchen say, oh, my God, it's me, you know, she, she talks about it a, lit in her, a bit in her final words of like, hey, you know, I guess if I was voted out of threat, I'll, I'll take it as sort of a badge of honor. But it's a weird thing to digest that your dreams and your adventure has come to an end because you were too good at something. It becomes, you know, such a big part of Survivor nowadays, moder- you know, managing your threat level. But that was not even talked about previously in Survivor up to that point. So Gretchen's boop just sets out a whole new paradigm shift, in my opinion, about how when the game switches from tribal to individual, that's when the motives to vote somebody out change. And that's when the game really gets interesting is trying to manage that level of individuality. It just sucks that it was, you know, the arguably the heart of the show to the point where you know, the production had such a vested interest in her that apparently when she walked to her final words confessional, apparently like at least eight different cameramen came over and like gave her a hug because they were all so vociferously supporting her that they were heartbroken that she ended up going here. Can I talk really quickly about like what an amazing mindset Gretchen has where she displays some things like, I don't know, Mike, you had a little bit of acting and all that sort of stuff in you and whatnot. And, you know, there's a thing like when you audition for something or you try out for something and you don't get it right. You have to process the fact that you are not going to get that part, that you are not going to continue with this thing. Like, and you know, and you don't necessarily count your chickens before they hatch, but it's like, if you're auditioning for something, you're sort of mentally preparing for, I am going to be tied up in this project for, weeks and weeks and weeks and, you know, invest my time and energy in this sort of thing. And so, and, and there are times where you're going into an audition and you're like, I'm probably not going to get this. This is just for experience. And then you don't get it and you're, you know, well, I wasn't going to get it anyway. That's fine. But like with Gretchen, like she can talk the rhetoric all she wants about how like, you know, oh, there's a voting and this, that, and the other thing. But it's like Gretchen probably knows that she's one of the stronger, more capable people out there on this island right now. And so even though she's saying, yeah, it could totally be me voted out tonight, she probably isn't thinking it actually is going to be her. And like, I can tell you, if whenever I've like auditioned for something and gone to callbacks and, you know, left that room kind of going, I think that's probably mine. And then I don't get the role. Like I tell people like, hey, you know, that's acting, you know, you don't, you don't get the part, you don't do the thing. But like, there's a part of you that's just like, what just happened? I have to process this. And it's like, you know, she was able to process it pretty well in front of cameras and other people and all of this sort of pressure going on. I give all the props in the world to Gretchen for that. Yeah, the one thing that, uh, to follow up on what Mike said originally, is that, you know, the cameraman came over and were giving her hugs and stuff. Is That was the perception of Gretchen among the crew, most of the players. Like, Pagong was kind of hapless. They were the kids. They didn't really work together. They were unorganized. Their shelter didn't work. They... They only really succeeded at all because they had Gretchen holding them together. She was the mom. And so it just seemed unfair to people that Gretchen could go like that so quickly just for being a leader. Like she did nothing wrong. She got along with Richard. She got along with Sue. Nobody had a bad word to say about her. You can see it on all the players' faces. Colleen in particular doesn't know what to say. Jenna, like they want to hug her. They don't know what to do. Like how do we exist without Gretchen here? And again, like I said, I remember where I was when I saw this moment. 
I'm sure you guys probably do even little 10-year-old Paul. This was probably the biggest moment in Survivor history. I will never forget it. Yeah, because, I mean, it really was like the worldview of the show has changed. You know, I think nowadays in television we've experienced many times with, like, series have like a defining moment that changes the way we, we view things forever whether it's a twist or like a genre shift and this was the case here where again like we were as gutted as the pagongs were everyone was in shock this was one of the first times ever where like it wasn't just you know one person left out of the vote or anything like that this was everyone with the exception of four people being left out of the vote and so you really do get like just insane facial reactions of of all people it being Gretchen to be the one to get put down here it's it's you know it is heartless but at the same time it is such a good move on the mm-hmm. Toggies part considering that like she was someone who was not going to play ball with them so that doesn't provide an out if they actually need one because let's remember that their plan was like okay we just have to get through two votes and then we're gonna have four and then we're going to be completely fine. They did not count on Kelly wavering at that point. And I guess, you know, you could possibly be looking for other options of people to go with should that alliance not carry through. Obviously, Kelly and Sue were looking at the women. Rich was looking at Greg to a certain extent. And Gretchen was sort of somebody that was not willing to play into that territory. And sometimes that makes you more of a threat uh, than maybe less of a threat. So I I think it's, you know, it was a perfect move for them to make because it scattered the Pagongs to the winds to the point where such a pivotal vote is the Greg vote. And they still are and end up, you know, pulling something off as a result of it. But damn, if it still doesn't sting today to hear... Gretchen's poor crestfallen, oh my god, it's me, as she comes to the realization of how things just quickly get pulled out from under her. Yeah, although again, she was not their first target. That's one thing you have to always remember. She was the backup after Greg. And in the next episode, they even knew they kind of crossed a line, is the next episode starts with them all justifying that it wasn't that bad a deal. Like, oh, she had to go, that was strategic. Like, they all kind of knew they crossed a line with her. It's really, you can see it. Although, okay, I want to get Paul's thoughts, and then i got to say one more thing. Paul, as a 10-year-old, how did this vote affect you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honestly say I remember I remember like that I didn't really like Gretchen that much as a 10-year-old. I thought she was like kind of crabby a little bit. Like I remember like her and Sue, I kind of would mix up in my head because it was like similar-aged woman. And so I remember being like, okay, well, I didn't really like her. So I actually don't have that strong of a memory of this vote out. Oh, and you make fun of me for saying something that's not interesting. <laughs> well, there you go. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I could tell you. I don't know what I was eating. I don't think I jumped on the trampoline. I, I, I literally have no memory of this vote, actually. Okay. Uh, one thing I have to say, again, pivotal moment in Survivor history, arguably the biggest moment in Survivor history, just because how, how many shockwaves it sent through the show, the viewership, the players. I cannot tell you how much it bugs me. And this is where Grumpy Old Man comes out into the world here how much it bugs me that when people think about this episode the only thing modern fans tend to say is oh that had that weird four to one to one to one vote and that's all they think about it oh it had that weird voting system like i'm sorry could you think a little bigger picture and what this did to the show than just a voting tally but that tends to be all that people focus on and i really inspire you and implore you think a little bigger to the bigger picture what this did to the show of survivor people were watching All right, hunker down. We may have to skip to the Greg one a little bit here. But all right, so Gretchen is gone. The biggest shockwave in Survivor history, maybe to this day still. And now, of course, it makes the next episode even more fascinating because what happens after the Gretchen vote? 
Well, what happens after is, so as you sort of alluded to in your intro here, Jeff has a new intro for the individual portion of the game. And I remember this uh, montage contains one of the bigger survivor spoilers, fake spoilers <laughs> that was out there, the fake Final Four shot of Jervis, Colleen, Sean, and Rudy at Tribal Council that made people think, oh my god, big spoiler, they spoiled who the Final Four was, but no, it seems like they purposely doctored a photo of Tribal Council to uh, create some red herrings for eagle-eyed viewers. Yeah, okay, let me let me fill people in who may not know about this. So, with Gretchen going, it's all but determined that the Toggies are probably going to win this game. And the worst thing possible, if you're a TV producer, is that the audience knows what the ending's going to be before you get there. It's a completely different mindset than now, in modern times, where they beat you over the head with who the winner's going to be because they have to justify it. Because it has to be, you have to accept the winner. Back in the early days, the name of the game was Hide the Winner. There should be no way the audience should be able to predict who it's going to be. So, Mark Burnett and the producers started a wonderful disinformation campaign of throwing out fake spoilers to hide the fact that a Toggy 4 member was going to win. And the first and most blatant one is in the start of this episode. It's still there if you go watch it on uh, iTunes or Amazon or wherever you watch these episodes. It's It says... Uh, uh, they have a, a shot of a tribal council during the opening montage, and it's a few, it's supposedly a future tribal council, and there's only four people in the shot, Jervis, Colleen, Sean, and Rudy. They have digitally taken the episode where Jervis gets voted out, the Target bullseye episode. They've digitally removed almost everybody else from that scene, and a lot of viewers were fooled by that, including me. I'm like, oh my god, did they just drop a spoiler in the opening credits? But that was indeed a fake spoiler tying in, of course, with the Jervis X one, which we'll talk about later, where a lot of people thought Jervis was going to win this and come back. But no, that's just the producers fucking with people on purpose to keep the mystery alive. And I think on top of that, then when he, he when Burnett uh, or uh, Probe says in the end, only one will remain, it no longer shows Richard. It used to. Mm -hmm. This is the first episode they stopped showing Richard during that line. So they're really trying to hide the fact that it's really a coast to the end for the for the Toggies. All right, so the start of the episode is just everyone talking on the beach, wondering what happened last night. Sean literally says, there's really no good reason other than strategy to vote Gretchen off. <laughs> that is such a wonderful Sean quote. He's not wrong. <laughs> other than hunger, there was no reason to eat that cheeseburger. <laughs> so, so yeah, Sean's like, last night was kind of strange. And Jenna's like, I think there was a conspiracy last night. Four votes for Gretchen. There's no way four people would have voted for Gretchen. And Sean says, you know, the bloodbath has begun. And Greg is mad. Greg's like, Gretchen hated this part. She liked the survival, the voting she hated. She would have been so furious that the game has devolved into this. And like everyone, everyone's just kind of aghast at what happened. Although this is where Rudy tells us it was his idea. He was the one that decided we have to get rid of Gretchen. Yeah, which, you know, I I would, I don't know, I feel like if someone like Richard said it, you might take it with a grain of salt because they're more likely to take the blame for it. But I can imagine that Rudy is, I think, you know, he's modest enough that I think he would appropriate the, the blame to people. So I guess good on Rudy slash pretty cutthroat on Rudy, even though Gretchen did vote Rudy off. So it's clear that the two of them weren't seeing eye to eye in particular. But yeah, Rudy has... I mean, Rudy's going to win, like, the uh, the big brainy challenge next episode. Like, he's an intelligent guy. He's really been figuring out this game on the fly. And I should point out here, the Pagongs all don't think it was unfair or that any rules were broken. Greg even says, he tells us, that's the way the game is played if you choose to play it that way. 
he's like, it's sleazy. He's like, I just don't want to do that. So it's like they don't really think the Toggies broke the rules. They're just like, I cannot believe they're the type of people who would play that way in such an easy, unfun way to win. And now Pagong apologizes. I, I think my Toggies formed an alliance. And <laughs> so. And here's an interesting quote from Kelly considering what's going to happen with her. People are here to make bosom buddies and lifelong friends. They should have just gone to summer camp. Uh, Concerning the moral quandary that she's going to face in a couple of episodes, she should take her own words. Okay, so not a lot happens at the start of the episode here other than Jenna kind of cozies up to Sue now. She's like, well, maybe I can get into an all-woman's thing. And Sue tells her, "Uh, don't worry, no women are going to go for a while. It's going to be Greg and that pervert Jarvis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so the women start pulling together and they all fish together. So the women start to get close. And this is where uh, it really all comes down to food. This Most of this episode is about Rich still catching fish and Rich is untouchable because he's the only one that can bring in food. Yeah. And uh, I mean, also a little bit of a precursor to all stars. Richard gets a nurse shark and he doesn't actually get bit this time and have to beat it against the, the rocks. Very Hemingway-esque, as Sheanne would say. <laughs> Okay, and again, I'm, just, I'm skimming through this episode because the next episode's more important, I think. But Greg starts cozying up to Richard, starts playing the gay thing, and, and all the people are like, well, you can see what he's doing. It's real obvious. And even Richard says, you know, I think it's cool that he's coming on to me, but I'm a little wary of him. He's too smart. And this is where Greg talks about cutting Colleen's neck as a kitten. She has to be let loose. Yeah, and this is also, again, like we're not going to get too much information as to why Greg gets voted off right before tribal council, but you can see it here where even the Pagongs, like I think Jenna's being like, Oh yeah, Greg has transparently changed who he's been since the merge. He's coming across much more devious. So again, even if, you know, the Pagongs had a moment to possibly turn things around, we're going to see here that Jenna herself is going to vote against Greg. And that one of the many reasons why Greg ends up going here is even with his closest tribe members, he's, you know, he has his cards out there in the open and it's very clear what he's doing for a man who, you know, usually is keeping people on their toes purposely. Okay. And here we go to a scene that even a 10 year old can understand Paul. And are you sure about that? I am. I, I have faith in you, Paul, that you were bright enough to understand the subtext here. It's a reward challenge, one of the most iconic moments of the season, where they all get to go shoot a bow and arrow at a target, and the winner will receive a video of home from their loved ones. And, oh, this is not going to work out particularly well for one of the players. Who? Why don't you tell us, Paul? You haven't talked in a while. We've only seen this clip of Jenna crying in the opening credits for uh, how many episodes now? Finally, we get to see why. Don't, 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 (laughs) don't. This is one of the bottom 10 moments of her life that she would one day rank up there with her death. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's amazing how she really had both ends of the spectrum, huh? What episode it was, uh, you know, as good as her wedding. And now there's this. Uh, yeah, but this is, I mean, I'm always, this is the first ever, like, not a loved one's visit because we're going to get Sean's dad in a couple of episodes. But as Jervis says, this is going to be like a nice way to get to know these people by getting a taste of home. You know, like we're reading Rich's son. We're meeting Kelly's boyfriend, Tracy, who looked like he just came out of selling meth out of a van. Uh, (laughs) He looks like her. They look alike. And, of course, you know, we get like Sue's dog, Stimpy, and Sue's husband. Uh, We get, of course, the great— Also Stimpy. Yeah, the great Marge, who uh, Mario met one time but also snubbed. Uh, (laughs) Sean's sister crashing his car. Uh, And, of course, Greg's sister, Julie. (laughs) Now, Paul, did you understand the incest subplot here when you were 10? I don't know if I knew the word incest, but uh, luckily Rudy was there to to let me know I should be weirded out by what was happening. 
Okay, I'll fill people in. Go ahead, Jay. Go ahead. I was just going to say, because, again, this is the whole, it's like that challenge, the barracks challenge, where, like, you know, it just, it gets broken. You know, again, this is a new show. They're flying everything by Mark. So, you know, that's the whole thing, is that the winner of this archery challenge is going to get this video from home, and they do the whole where they play, like, a a 10 or 15-ish second preview of each person's video right so they go through all the videos we're meeting people it's this nice heartwarming moment and then we get to the end where jeff's like well jenna your family didn't send the video it in time so you don't get one <laughs> yeah, no, you know because you would think like she's the most heartwarming video they're saving it for last and jeff's like well by the way uh sad ending <laughs> this video never came you know which is so funny because like you know, I know that, you know, Survivor's got more of a budget and things like that today, but it's like, you know that Survivor wouldn't allow that if that were a thing today, right? Like, they don't do all this sort of stuff anymore, and we do have loved ones visits and yeah, I, I, all this sort of stuff. But, like, you know that, like, they would have, like, gone back or, like, had someone send something or, you know, and yes, the internet is a lot more prominent now, so they could just send, like, you know, something over some streaming or something like that. But, like, just the fact that they were, like, everyone had to send in a video by a date. Your family missed the date. You don't get a video. <laughs> Wait, well, you really think the producers wouldn't do that now? I I take offense to that. I, they would specifically cast Jenna if her mom did not own a video camera just so they could have that moment. <laughs> Oh, your mom didn't have a camera. I'm sorry. No, I don't. I, I don't think that would be a thing because they have bigger fish to fry than that. Uh, well, right. Apparently, they actually changed this challenge. Like, apparently, this was supposed to be a challenge that happened earlier. But and because the reason why they brought this up is because, of course, understandably, Jenna makes a huge stink after this challenge. Like, she is stomping at probe, saying you guys were purposely like withholding this to make TV. And very sincerely, Jeff says like. We tried changing this challenge's timing to try to get the tape in time, but, like, we weren't not going to run the challenge. You know, we have all these videotapes, and yours just didn't come in time. But I always remember, like, this is a very it, – it's a, it's a heartbreaking moment. I think for all the times we can poke fun at Jenna Lewis, like, it's very clear that she is one of those people who, like, was had her heart really buoyed by her children in particular. And to have her of all people, the person who needs the visit from home the most over Greg's incestuous sister – <laughs> to not have an opportunity to even see them is like, God, it's like you cannot write that stuff. It is just beautiful in the sickest way possible. Well, first, and, off, and it, first off, don't incest shame, Mike. Thank you. Okay, so so let's 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 dance around this for a bit. First of all, they do the archery contest, Greg wins. We're gonna get to Greg's video in a second. But you know, as Greg's video is showing, and I'm gonna let Mario or somebody talk about Greg's video because holy shit. But like <laughs> Um, uh, what they, what they show is they show like, as Greg's like getting this video, like Jenna is like still shooting in the background, like the archery, you know, cause she's pissed and frustrated. And, you know, like part of you is sitting there going like, why is she so frustrated? She's frustrated cause she didn't get a video. And you're like, you know, cause it's not like she had a video. She lost the challenge. She can't see the video because she lost the challenge. She can't see the video cause there ain't no video, but she, you know, the fact that she's upset with production for running this and stuff like that is part of that storm of her like being off shooting. I'm sure, and it's like again, it's a it's a thing we don't see, but yet they still frame it in a way that is a nice narrative on TV. Anyway, Greg's video, go. I will in a second, but there's one thing that Mike forgot to mention. It's mentioned in the book, is that 
Jenna was not the only one who thought the producers took the video and didn't give it to her, that they were hiding it. The other players thought that too, is that this is not shown in the episode, but Burnett talks about it in the book. The other players were furious that the producers would dare to do this challenge without Jenna having a video. And they all considered revolting and refusing to participate in the challenge. I think Greg was the one who said, we'll just fire our arrows up in the air and no one will hit the target. So they were going to revolt in solidarity with Jenna and Jenna basically convinced them, just do it. Doesn't matter about me, but they were furious with the producers as well. Yeah. And that's why I think next episode, when for the first time ever, someone's asked to choose someone else to go on a reward, like everyone, Tagi or Pagong says Jenna. And that's the thing as well. Say what you want to about the tribe names, but it's these rare moments when like they're actually a community of people. They're like, yeah, we feel really bad for her. And yeah, I mean, we get this. We're going to get early the next day when she's like, I bruised my arm shooting that target because I know I wanted to win this. It's just, it's really sad. And what's made even sadder is that what's shown instead of her children are, is Greg's sister making weird mouth sounds saying, <laughs> do what Billy Joel would do. Apparently this is in Burnett's book, but wasn't shown probably for rights purposes. Apparently she, she launches into like a rage induced version of high hopes, uh, <laughs> just screaming at the top of her lungs. Uh, she's talking about, you know, uh, what's sleeping on the Island right now. All the giant, scary spiders are, are sleeping. And I think the best, part of this might be everyone else's reactions to it <laughs> yeah there's no way to describe this video if you haven't seen it where it's a loving video from home and the one person that gets picked is the iconoclast greg whose balls are still hanging out i'm sure and his video from home is his sister who's even weirder than he is where they start talking about how they want to feel each other and basically do sexy dancing with each other. I'm not entirely sure what they're doing. And Rudy is horrified because he's watching a video about a dude and his sister joking about banging each other. So anyway, wonderful moment in this family-friendly show of Survivor. I'm sure he thought, well, this is what MTV is. I suppose it's just everyone doing each other's sisters. Uh, Yeah, Rudy, just great quote. Can't understand what a guy talking to his sister that way. Sounds like Greg was talking maybe incest. And that's the great thing about Rudy is like this, like Rudy's going to flat out say abortion a couple of episodes later. I forgot how Rudy will like just outright say things that would not have been said in 2000. Uh, Underrated quote, though, from Sean. At least we know he's not the only screwball in the family. Maybe it's a genetic trait. But yeah, it's I just love because let's remember the other half of the reward is that not only and this is the like carrot for jenna was not only do you get a video from home but you get to record your own video and i forgot that jeff probst gets to be the cameraman to be the first-hand witness to greg looking him in the eyes and talking about how much he felt his sister and how he hoped she felt him at the same time well he jeff still had the camera when he was doing the snake shot you know he was getting down and pretending to be the snake so it made sense for him to do this one too yeah and then sue got the paddle and started batting him away while talking about how much she wants to feel greg's sister you could talk about you know uh uh maybe this for television purposes but i i I feel like you know when people are like survivors rigged yeah a lot of it's rigged but there are some things that they just leave up to chance and it seems, and what horrible luck that the Greg. videos from home in the first few seasons is Greg and his sister, and then you get Cece Heidek a few years <laughs> going, you know, look at all your cars and stuff like that. Like, oh my God, what, what, what winners and what videos to see? 
<laughs> and Greg would later describe the video of his sister as one of his top 10 moments in yeah. life alongside his funeral or the time he wrestled his mom, the time he motorboated his cousin. Uh, and, and Rudy actually, like Greg very rarely breaks his visage, but he does hear when Rudy says, Julie, we got to put up with this for about two more weeks and uh, then we might kill him. Is that doing you a favor? And even Greg just like breaks at, at Rudy completely selling that line to the camera. <laughs> all right all kidding aside i've seen a lot of discussion over the years do you think the producers hid this video from jenna on purpose in fact i saw a guy on reddit named dabu who's really smart had a whole big essay arguing that he thinks the producers hid it on purpose because it would have made better tv but for the record i have to say jenna just recently answered someone i think on uh, instagram or twitter asked her and she's like no that was completely legit they sent out a last minute request for videos my mom was traveling they were doing something with a hurricane cleanup in another city. By the time they got the message, it was too late. So she's like, it was just totally bad timing and it was legit. But I, I wish I would have had a video, but nobody, there was no, uh, nothing nefarious there, just bad timing. All right, so uh, uh, Greg won the video. He got to send the incest letter back to his sister. And now we get, <laughs> now we get a whole montage of who Toggy's going to vote out next. And they all want Jervis because he's a slacker where Sue says the immortal quote, I'm going to make that, I'm going to work that boy now. Yeah, I think, I think, I think Julie Buis has inspired them all now, just overly sexualizing everything. Sean finally feels like he's in his wheelhouse. <laughs> yes, everybody's getting to different bases with people now. But, uh, but uh, Jervis even says, I do nothing. I do nothing, and I'm great at this game. I cannot believe they won't vote me out. And so here we go, the uh, tree mail for this episode, the uh, immunity challenge. It's a rope base. We have to run around and do carabiners. I'm not going to spend too much time on this other than say Jervis wins. Jervis might have been voted out here. That's who they were talking about. But with him out of the picture, it's going to be Greg again. And it's going to be a pretty simple vote, right? Yeah, I do like uh, the fact that, you know, as mentioned, uh, this is not really a Jeff Probst narration-infused era of Survivor, so they do the lower thirds. I like, so Jervis, they had, like, currently leading, and Jenna was currently second, and then Greg was currently lost, with him just, like, (laughs) wandering around. And then they update it. It's a great little comedic moment of still leading, still second, and lost again, with Greg (laughs) just wandering around the course. you think the outdoorsman would, like, be able to navigate this ropes made the best, but I think Jervis is, like, just straight-up cardio skill ends up benefiting here and he also he talks about this next episode but he actually his strategy like once Gretchen was voted out like he became very wise to not necessarily the alliance but like the idea of if I want to win this game I have to win every single immunity challenge from here on out and so that's another reason why he's the slacker is that he's that person who is saving his energy for when it really counts in these immunity challenges yeah, the only big subplot that people have to remember about these episodes is Kelly is starting to get squirrely about voting off the Pagongs because she likes them. And now that they saw each other's videos from home, it's starting to humanize everybody. Kelly's starting to get squirrely, and Sue is getting a little worried that Kelly may not have the gumption to go all the way with this. And we get a great quote from Rudy here where he says, "We everybody has to stay in line or off to break some kneecaps or something. So Rudy is already threatening violence. But again, we're going to set up the storyline for the rest of the season right here. Kelly may not be in with the Alliance all along. And that's a problem because they do not. This is not a slam dunk yet. They do not have the numbers. And with that being said, we're going to go into Tribal Council here. Does Tribal Council like do you think the set changed at all? For some reason, maybe it's because it's been a while since we've watched these episodes, but it looks more brightly lit in my opinion, that it has the previous few times. Like, do you think they finally got their shit together and put a canopy over it? 
I think that's because Gretchen ascended to heaven and she's an angel now. I think they just wanted to get the lights on right for this one because they knew they were going to like put Toggy in the hot spot to answer if there really is an alliance or not. Like, we've got to make sure we get this, we capture this. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about this, this tribal council, because right at the start, Jeff says to Sue, straight up, is there an alliance? And I love this because at the time on the message boards, a lot of fans debated, is it really ethical for Jeff Probst to be trying to steer the game like that? This was a very big moment for Jeff Probst here because he wasn't doing that prior to this. And I remember a lot of fans squawking that he shouldn't be allowed to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's from a certain perspective, though. Like, he's, I mean, Burnett calls him Chief Jeff. So it's like he is more so taking this role of, like, getting stuff out in the open. You know, that's why they tried the open forum in the first few tribal councils that they sort of, like Jay said, they're sort of honing in on what's going to be a formula for the show for better or for worse. And at this point, even early on, it's Jeff trying to sort of, like, needle things out of people i mean even in episode six he's the one who brings up the cow comment so like he is somebody who is going to walk in with a list of topics but what he can't deal with are the fact that they can lie to him uh and so sue does and kelly does though it's going to burn her up so so much more than it does with sue uh jay i'm curious your thoughts on this do you think were you involved in that, the ethics and this, this debate at the time? Like, should Jeff be allowed to do this kind of thing? No, I wasn't active on internet boards, really, at this point uh-huh. in my survivor thing. Um, I mean, I wasn't really thinking about it very much because, again, with Gretchen leaving, like, my attitude at this point is just I'm spinning, right? Like, you know, everyone always nowadays really course corrects. Like someone does a move, you know, or they like split votes or they do something like some weird idle counter. And, you know, everyone's just like, ooh, and then they just like dissect it. And we have podcasts and we have so much content and so many things written. And it's like there just wasn't a ton of that back in the day. And, yes, there was, you know, Survivor Sucks and there was, you know, uh, some sort of Internet presence. But it's nothing like the analysis that is out there today. And... I think that, you know, again, we weren't thinking in the frames of game gameness. You know what I mean? We were just looking at the show and like feeling the things that 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 the show was trying to make us feel. And so, you know, when they, when we, we were talking about just the ethics of Jeff doing something to me, I'm just sitting there going like, I can't believe they voted out Gretchen. <laughs> so you're an episode behind. Um, no, but you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Okay, but yeah, so you have your favorite quote where Sue says, Sean is dumb. Here's my Sue quote that I love. I loved it. People would always impersonate this on uh, when they talk about Sue back in the day. Straight up, is there an alliance? And Sue gets the deer in the headlights look, and she's like, no. <laughs> I vote people off that I don't care for. <laughs> yeah, she, she compares it. She's like, oh, well, you know, it's like having a bad coworker, but this time you actually get to vote him off. See, that's the thing. It's like, okay, so like the worst coworker was Gretchen. That was the worst coworker to have, you know, like the like most like cooperative, easygoing, hardworking, like person was the person you voted off. I personally love Kelly's reaction as she's ans- as she's has a follow-up question that says, Kelly, same question. And her first response is, Do I have to answer? <laughs> I'm like, good job, you two. Really com- you're really coming off here uh, not suspicious. No. I mean, to be fair, uh, Sean's totally fine with it. So it maybe did play to some people completely fine. 
And again, we get into why Colleen became America's sweetheart, even though she doesn't really play the character America's sweetheart, but she's always the voice of the audience where Jeff says, what about you, Colleen? Would you join an alliance? Would you do whatever it takes to get this money? And Colleen's like, no, it's not that important to me. And Jeff's like, you wouldn't play people against each other? And Colleen just shakes her head. No, it's like, I, I'm not here for that. And again, she's speaking for the audience, most of the audience, and obviously not everybody, but they were, most of the audience was very, very pro-Pagong, very, very anti-Toggy. It'll get even more so next episode. And with that, I think we uh, lose Greg here. Although we, we have Sean first voting for Greg alphabetically saying, I don't think this vote will mean very much. Uh, just the precursor <laughs> for J for Jetta, but... Yeah, and there's a fun little Greg moment here where he votes for Jenna. First time for paranoia, second time for irritation, and third time because my ear infection is clearing up. And he did indeed have an ear infection, so at least he gave a legitimate reason as to why he voted for Jenna three times over the course of the season. Yeah, and Jenna was indeed annoying, so (laughs) that backs up. That holds water as well. Unlike his ear. Uh, Yeah, and this is, you know, again, true in true Greg fashion— uh, when Greg gets voted out, he starts. This is one moment that I'll always remember when he did. He goes into the mock sobbing, uh, and he's like babbling about like where to put things. And apparently, Rudy believed him for a hot second. Uh, Jay, I don't know if you want to rate his performance at all, considering apparently there were real tears back there, according to Rudy. <laughs> I believed him. Rich is like, You did, Rudy? Yeah, for a minute, I did. <laughs> Look at the tears back there. Okay, two things about this scene. When Richard votes for Greg, I love that he sings, Good night, sweetheart, it's time to go. No more competition. Goodbye. Which I always like that quote. That's pure Richard right there. And I swear to God, when Greg gets voted out, not everyone will know this movie, but the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I swear Greg is quoting that. If you listen to him, he's like, I just need my torch, and that's all I need. So I swear he's he's quoting Steve Martin there, I believe, I think. That, yeah, that would make a lot of sense because, I mean, that's not as, I think, intellectual as some of the stuff that Greg was doing, but I feel like that would make sense because it's a big act. And then, of course, in true Greg fashion, he goes right from that into probably the most enigmatic final words I think we've ever heard in Survivor history. <laughs> I'm wondering what 10-year-old Paul thought of Greg's final words where he blames Operation Tapioca and the spies for his demise. Again, I don't know if I fully was getting everything, but what's interesting with it was, remember, it was this episode that my brother, who was six at the time, walked in the room and said, what are you guys watching? And we said, Survivor. And then he sat down on the floor and watched every episode since then as a six-year-old. But it was him in that moment that he didn't like Greg, but was happy. He was rooting for Rich in that moment. And I, I remember kind of lecturing him, like, well, he's never going to win or something like that. But, um, yeah, I, I think I... Um, yeah, I don't know. I just was like, Greg was kind of a weirdo. Hard to relate to him, too. <laughs> yeah, I had not listened to Greg's final words in a while. And I would, in, <laughs> if you can find Greg's full final words, mm-hmm. I would advise you to go track them down. I don't know if they're on YouTube or somewhere. But yeah, they're, it's all about how there were spies in the jungle. And this was Operation Tapioca. And there was double agents. And he's going on and on. I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> yeah, like a twist of fate that maybe some didn't expect. And some... Well, some did. Like, what What the fuck are you going on about? I want to read two quick things uh, about from Burnett's book before we, we move on here. So this is Burnett's sort of, like, final take on Greg, which I think speaks to his, like, 
you know, Mara, you spoke a lot about like the Andy Kaufman strategy, and I think Burnett's sort of focusing on that here when he talks about Greg. Uh, he said, it had been a game all along, Greg confided. The nature phone and the torn pants and the incredible body odor and the sleeping the in balls. the jungle. Exactly. Had all been part of an elaborate character constructed just for Survivor. Though he wasn't the final winner, in Greg's mind, he had played Survivor better than anyone, and he was proud of it. Greg chose to look at the game as a wade into the netherworld between reality and drama. He'd planned his charades before coming to the island, grasping, even I must admit, before I did, Survivor's potential as a Peter Pan-like world where what was real and what was imagined were all in the eyes of the beholder. His skewering of reality on both sides of the island was the ultimate foray into dramality. Every day in one of his actions and words, Greg had both the production crew and fellow tribe members wondering who the real Greg was. He paid lip service to Kafka and Star Wars, then actively inserted himself into an equally surreal world. His downfall lay in opting for those paradigms instead of Machiavelli's. Greg didn't have the stomach for Machiavelli. That was the realm of grown-ups. Greg was still a child. And that's what I, I really... Greg has always been one of my, my, my favorites because of that. That, like, this was a guy that was just completely off on its own, but still had that subtlety to him and, and the smarts to know what was happening. And also just a fun little uh, other comment from Burnett about the Alliance... Just as gay sex was what famously described as the love that dare not speak its name, so the Alliance had become a passionate, anonymous entity. So yes, <laughs> Merck Burnett compared the first ever Survivor Alliance to gay sex. <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. I don't either. Between this and the virginity comments, I have several questions for Mark Burnett. <laughs> So does that mean Richard was the first person to find the back door before Chris Doherty? Yeah, I was going to say, maybe that's why he's he's credited with the Alliance. <laughs> wow. Mark is so weird. He is such a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, I could hear Paul groan as I was reading the Greg excerpt. Wow. It's, it's terrible. And and Mark Burnett's kind of terrible. I'm sorry. I no, said it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. It's absolutely true. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, how do I follow that? I don't right. know. <laughs> so, okay, so look, Greg... a fish over there, a fish over there. Look. Yeah. Oh, cool flying fish. All right. So, I guess at this point we got to talk about Jervis X a little, and I don't want to delve too much into this just because we're going really long in this podcast. But Jervis X, for people who don't know, was a thing on the Survivor message board or on the Survivor website, CBS.com, where you know back in the day it was very important that the winner of Survivor not be spoiled. It, the, the audience had to be surprised by who it was. And so it's pretty obvious here it's going to be probably Rich or Kelly or Sue, probably one of those three. And the audience, the, the producers did not want the audience to know that. And it's amazing they were able to hold the secret. They really did hold the secret of the winner for the longest time. But it was around this time that someone was digging around the CBS website and they found this uh, all these pictures of players after you got voted out of the game they put a little red x on your picture and they would post it on the website on the bio page and some enterprising programmer found out everybody has a red x picture on the website hidden in their archive down there except for jervis and he posted his findings on the message board and to this day it's still uh debated if this was obvious this was uh planned by cbs if they did this on purpose or it was just a simple glitch and a file was missing but from here on out, all these Survivor fans on the message boards knew, hey, Jervis does not have an X on the website. That means he might be the winner. And you mm -hmm. combine that with the fake Final Four spoiler in the last episode, 
And all of a sudden, everyone thought, well, you know, the Patagia Alliance is doing well and voting people out, but Jervis is going to have a big comeback. And that seemed to be the prevailing sentiment. And I just, before you pipe in here, Mike, in this episode, I forgot, there's another thing where the producers play around with it again. They say, who will be voted out tonight? And they flash in episode nine, Jay for Jenna, they flash all the players left in the game, all eight of them, one after another. And the last one remaining is indeed Jervis. So the producers are playing along, along with it now, too. Yeah, there, I remember there was like a false narrative building after Jervis won that challenge of like, wait a minute, could Jervis really do this? Could he really win all the challenges? Which I do think, in retrospect, I think people talk about like, what does the effect of the first Survivor winner have on the show? And I do think if Jervis had won out to the end, it would have been kind of lame, right? If he won like six immunity challenges in a row and only won because of that, it would have been a very different story, I think, than what the Toggies end up doing here. But it would have been a more popular story. That's very true. I mean, Jervis would have been one of the biggest heroes in Survivor history. All right. So episode nine, Jay for Jenna. Again, we're down to the final eight. And this is my vote. Maybe the single greatest episode in Survivor history. I do not think there's a single wasted second in this episode. Every, there's like 10 iconic quotes and confessionals. The story is amazing. It's self-contained. Everything that's been set up until here is it plays off in this episode. It's got this wonderful overthrow moment at the end that just somehow falls short and it's so infuriating but it's so compelling i just do you guys love this episode as much as i do probably not but it's great (laughs) (laughs) yeah sorry after you hype that up we can't go to that level but no it's really good like there's so much there's there's some comedy in it there's like it's really when when kelly takes her turn how she's 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 seeing things and it's just yeah it's great from from uh, start to finish Okay, and the other thing that's big about this episode is Colleen narrates almost the entire episode. Like, she gets a Kathy O'Brien episode here, where she just continually is the narrator for everything. It's, and, and she's so good, it's amazing. Yeah, because well, well, I think the perspective of the Pagongs right now is like, they talked about this last episode, like, okay, if one more Pagong goes here, then we'll know something's up. And now <laughs> something's up, and you could sort of feel the frustration now on everyone's face, slash the resolution from a couple of them of like, okay, we need to do something about this. Okay, and to paint the picture for people who may not have seen it recently, there's four Toggies left, and there's four, or sorry, five, there's a Toggy four, and there's three Pagongs, and there's Sean in the middle of the swing vote, who votes alphabetically like a dumbass. And now you have Kelly, who at the end of the last episode says she might not want to be in the Toggy Alliance anymore. She's kind of a swing vote. She's a free agent. So all of a sudden, this is the one time the Toggy four may be vulnerable. And the other players know that. And so here we go. Jay for Jenna. Such a masterpiece. It opens with Hatch bitching about that, that Probst was asking about the alliances of Tribal Council last night. Where he says outright lying is absolutely essential in this game especially when you have a host like jeff who's as bold as to ask well sue so tell me is there an alliance and he's like what a question and you know colleen to your point you made earlier mario is the one who says these people flat out lied in front of a national television audience and again echoing a lot of what people were saying at the time says she does not believe a deserving person will win the money and obviously deserves is a very subjective term, but I think she's echoing a lot of what people had felt about what the Toggies were doing and how it was antithetical to like the heart of what survivor was supposed to be. Yeah. 
this is definitely where the TV cameras come into play as one of the players. As now everyone is talking about the Toggies lied on camera last night, which was not seen as ethical behavior. You were not supposed to be lying flat out like Sue even says. You think I'm going to admit that I was an alliance? Come on! <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, Colleen says, in front of a national television audience, these people lied, and that's it. They won a million bucks, and they're going to get it. And then she says, and I love Jeff's question, is a deserving person going to win this money? The answer to that question is no. And with that, we go into Kelly's dilemma here. Yeah, this is so, I don't know. Like, I'm intrigued why voting off Greg at was like the real switcher for her. Because I could imagine with someone like Jenna, right, who she's made a bond with. I wonder if it's, you know, the Toggies were sort of in this mode of, like, we just need to get past two votes and we're golden. I wonder if it was mentally, once she had gotten to that point, and then she sort of looked around and realized the goal that she accomplished, she realized, you know, what she had to do. But also, you know, Burnett goes into this. Kelly is just a very fiercely independent person to begin with. And she says as much, if I'm really going to be the last survivor, if I'm really going to survive and really do this, then it has to be on my own. And I think that, you know, Richard and Rudy and Sue actually do a pretty good job in this episode of, you know, being able to utilize Sean's vote to be like, okay, Kelly will have her independent moment and, you know, vote elsewhere because we know she'll eventually be able to come back and vote our way next time and still stay with the Alliance. But she needs her moment of independence. They're the parents saying, we'll have the kid go get their ear pierced and they'll eventually realize the error of their ways and come back and live with us. It, that this this setup just really highlights how crucial it is that Sean is here after the merge, especially for the Toggy Alliance. And we always say the Toggy Four because the the Toggy voting block that that we see and understand is Richard, Sue, uh, Rudy, and Kelly, right? But as as we're seeing here, Kelly is wavering, and it would be really interesting if Sean weren't there. And doing his dumb alphabet strategy so the Toggies could literally just piggyback on his vote. So their voting of, of four, in, in a sense, becomes a, vo- a voting of five. Because if you look at the voting coming up, and I, I don't want to play spoilers and all that sort of stuff, Kelly does not vote with the Alliance a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter because Sean, they basically vote for whoever Sean is voting for. And so Sean is like this weird safety net that they have in their voting lines. And it'd be real interesting if they didn't and Kelly broke away. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people just remember this as a Pagong steamroll to the end. But like Jay said, it's not. You have the Kelly and Sean variables, which are much different and they have to work around that. It's it, Again, it makes it more interesting the minute it becomes a Pagonging because now it's an ethics test. As Kelly says here, if we do this, it's like lambs to the slaughter. It's no fun. It's just boring. That's what she's like. We could win, but that's not even fun. Like it's who would fun watch camping. Yeah, who would watch this? Who who would care about this? We're making a TV show. So I think she's got that in the back of her head. And we're going to go back to something that the Pagong said a couple episodes ago with Gretchen. That, you know, the Toggies went out of their way to make friends with her and befriend her and then stabbed her in the back. And a lot of the Pagongs had a problem with that. And I'm guessing Kelly probably did too. She probably saw the way Sue and Rich sidled up to Gretchen and she didn't like it. It was a little too cold-hearted for her. Yeah, I, I'm just so intrigued as to like, What made her switch in that moment? Was it as impetuous as her being like, okay, now that we made it to this point, from now on, I'm breaking off on my own? You know, like, did she ever intend to go to the final four with them and her mind changed? Or was it more so like, yeah, I'll go as far as I want to with this alliance, but when I decide I want to work on my own, then I will. 
Yeah, who knows? Although that does lead to a question. I want to get everyone's opinion on this. Is Kelly Wigglesworth an interesting character? I have heard people with very extreme reactions to this question over the years. And I have my opinion, but mine has changed over the years several times. Like, do you think Kelly is an inherently interesting character or person? I'm going to say no. Like Kelly Wigglesworth as a person, as a character, is not that interesting. It's like more interesting, like the dilemma she faces, if that makes yeah. any sense. It's like the context that she's put in more than actually Kelly, because Kelly's like whatever. What Kelly represents is more interesting than Kelly Wigglesworth herself. Uh, and look no further than like, granted, I think modern Survivor editing is its own thing, but I think when she came back for Survivor Cambodia, they really didn't know what to do with her because she just seemed like a chill, relatively normal person. But I think what she goes through here is so important to Survivor and ethical and moral quandaries because like this is an example of somebody who she's going to bring up the analogy I forget if it's this episode or the next episode of like Luke Skywalker turning to the dark side right and this was her attempting to be Darth Vader throwing Palpatine uh, down the shaft at the end of Return of the Jedi uh, someone of saying that someone can actually defect from like the immoral alliance I think that's a really essential concept it's just that maybe if you take that away from her the personality does not shine as much at least compared to the other three members of her alliance i think this mario a lot of characters in especially in this early archetypal you know very old school uh version of survivor a lot of the characters that end up being very bombastic and 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 memorable in a lot of ways are remarkably static as as they they don't go through a lot of like journeys and discoveries they're just this thing and they're this thing a lot and that's what happens right like johnny fairplay is he's got his fairplay stick like the whole time does he switch things up and vary things yes he does but johnny fairplay is very static right rupert is probably the most static character we've ever seen in survivor richard muses through things and has lots of musings but like richard knows who he is and richard just kind of is richard throughout all this this season so is sue i mean yes rudy comes to uh, uh, appreciate richard but i mean rudy doesn't go through some big fundamental fundamental philosophical change he learns throughout the game but rudy is rudy right he's cranky rudy and he, and he does the thing right and you can you could you could argue no he does this was yeah i get you but like kelly is probably not as as bombastic a character because she she's not super static she changes like and, and she goes through uh, for better, for for lack of a better term, she goes through a journey in this game. Whereas a lot of the other characters do not go through a journey. They are static characters that we appreciate and we kind of latch onto along the way. But Kelly is going through a dilemma, and her dilemma is the dilemma of what is this game? Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's it really comes down to if you think it's her situation or her, because I have long argued. I think she's dull. I don't think Kelly's especially interesting. Now, I have no doubt or argument that what she goes through her what she goes through is amazing. She has by far the most deep story arc, but her character itself is so flat it never really resonates with me. My argument has always been, can you imagine if Colleen was in her spot and Colleen was the reluctant fourth Toggy member? That would have been a fascinating storyline because I could picture her turning on, but you'd really you'd really care about her story more than Kelly. So that's really my argument. Although I have a reader named Spencer Wilson, who's always trying to argue that Kelly is a, an amazing character and probably the most important one in Borneo. And he makes good points. So I can't really argue with him, but it's just, I was curious your thoughts on that as well. 
Well, I think that Spencer may be correct. She may be the most important one in Borneo for the story. Mm-hmm. But is she the most important survivor character to come out of Borneo? Probably not. Because, again, you know, Kelly doesn't return to play the game. And I, I know we shouldn't sit here and say, like, we base things on returnees because mm-hmm. the concept of returnees I don't like. But, like, you know, Wigglesworth comes back and plays the game a bajillion years later, uh, you know, and, and it's not like, you know, people were clamoring for more Kelly, right? Like, and, and, and the thing about Kelly in a lot of ways is we'll argue when we get there about Richard winning and how Richard was kind of a villain. And now we're kind of like, was Richard all this sort of stuff. But like, ultimately we talk about Richard, the winner, but we also need to talk about Kelly, the, I don't want to say loser, but Kelly, the second place person. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think that if the second place person is Colleen, that rips everybody's heart out. And I think Mm -hmm. survivor suffers so much more from it. And the fact that Kelly didn't totally resonate completely with everyone, but yet we can empathize with the situation and the things that she's having. It was kind of one of those things where, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, I wish Kelly won instead of Richard, but not like everyone's like, oh, Kelly didn't win. OK, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And I will also to piggyback off of what Jay said, I think both your statements, Mario's and Spencer's can be true, much like in a lot of popular culture, sometimes your main character is not often the the most interesting one or the best one, but they're probably the most important one in that regard. A lot of this narrative is going to be disseminated through Kelly, particularly in the in the back part of these episodes when you know it's really going to come down to the Pagongs just easily getting picked off and then this alliance turning on one another. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are enthralled by what Kelly Wigglesworth is bringing to the screen, but that is not to undermine the narrative value. Uh, that she is bringing and the the philosophical and ethical stuff that she is bringing as well because again she really is the first person to con to basically live in both camps quite literally of someone who wants to be a free spirit but someone who is also part of this alliance and is really trying to figure out on which side she stands yeah and and to play devil's advocate i was in a survivor group a couple of years ago and they were trying to come up with the top 100 survivor characters and we came to gretchen And Gretchen was a huge lightning rod. Was she inherently interesting or was what happened to her interesting? And I think Kelly probably follows and falls into that as well. So I could see that. Although one thing, Jamie, you mentioned returning characters. I always thought it was interesting and people should know this. When they were casting All Stars season eight, they were having a hard time getting the big name females for the show because Colleen turned them down. Elizabeth Elizabeth turned them down. Even at that point, no one was talking about Kelly. Even when they were hard up to try to find young females, no one was like, oh, let's get Kelly. So I'm just wanting to point out she was never an especially big name in Survivor, despite the fact that she has this amazing storyline. It's just something about her that is especially flat, I feel. A lot of things broke right um, for Survivor in a lot of ways. And I mean, hey, they they manipulated some of it, like with the Stacey Stillman lawsuit, you know. But I recall... um, do you know Mario? Because your baseball uh, uh, background. Do you do you remember the uh, Buck O'Neill? Buck O'Neill. Yeah, I know his name. Why should I know that? Uh, Buck O'Neill was. He used to play for the Kansas City Monarchs, and he established later on in life. There is a, a museum in Kansas City, I believe, uh, and it's a wonderful museum. And uh, he he's passed away. He passed away a long time ago. But you know, he he did a lot of interviews talking about uh, the integration of baseball and and all of that sort of stuff. And they asked him about Jackie Robinson, and they basically said, was he the best player to integrate uh, Major League Baseball? And he always said Jackie Robinson wasn't the best player, but he was the right player. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that statement always 
it, it's so it's so clairvoyant and wise. And I think that in the sense of like Survivor and a lot of this thing, like was Kelly like a great character? No, she was the right character for that arc. I think for Survivor to work in a lot of terms. That is a fantastic analogy. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so well, and I and I and I think okay. people need to know who Buck O'Neill is because Buck O'Neill was amazing. Yeah. Oh, I think people, you might want to follow up on why he said that about Jackie Robinson, because Jackie Robinson was the type who would not fight back against the racists that were yelling at him. He wasn't the biggest, most domineering, you know, scary player. He had the right personality, the right temperament that he would work as being the first black man in baseball. So that's what he's well, talking about. Well, not only that, but also Jackie Robinson wouldn't back down in a lot of yes, ways, both, you know, because yeah, there, there's a lot of analogies there. But we're going off on a, on a tangent there. Uh, as it is, but please let's let's uh, let's get this J for Jenna done. All right, sorry, Paul. Sports. All right. So speaking of sports, the rest of the episode is mostly Rich and his fishing acumen. As again, this is where, like I said, Rich is not really unethical, but he's very immature. There's not really ways you can de- debate that. That he decides he starts catching all these fish and he's really feeding everyone well. And at one point. They talk about how much power he has, and Rudy says, I sort of liked him even before I knew he was a queer, which is a high praise from Rudy. But then Rudy burned some of Richard's fish, and Richard has a little shit fit because Rudy burned his gifts, and he's like, these people do not appreciate the fish that I'm bringing in. I'm going to starve everyone just to make them appreciate me more. So he goes on a fishing strike where he won't catch anything for a few days. I always appreciate it when, you know, the winner, when when Survivor does not shy away from showing the flaws of the winner. I think yeah. it, it, it always yields way more interesting winners. Like, you know, I think about all the flaws we see of Jenna Maraska a few years after this. But like, I just think it's, it's just way more fun to have a character, a winner like this because you, you see all the, their strengths and then definitely uh, some of their weaknesses, some of their not so uh, shining moments. Yeah. I mean, let's remember here, Richard's not going to win unanimously. Richard's going to lose four to three. And you feel in these few episodes when the Pagongs are being led to the slaughter, like how much, like Jenna, Jervis, and Colleen are not fans of Richard Hatch. And that's another thing as well, is to Paul's point, like I love the warts and all edit as well because it's more realistic, but also like it, it tells a story of how as much as Richard might think like, okay, I'm gonna schmooze everybody and get to the win, there were still people that he was like not you know, uh, that, that he was bristling with and that as, as cocky as he may have been about the situation he was in strategically, this was far from in the bag with him because the people that were going to the jury were, were not in love with the way that Richard was sort of behaving. And like even Sean talks about like he's getting a little ticked off at like Richard consistently bringing up the fish at tribal council. He doesn't love like how untruthful he is about being like, oh, don't vote me off because I can fish. So it's clear at this point that like Rich is harping on himself as the fishing guy and everyone is just getting very, very ticked off at like how high and mighty he is about it. Yeah, this episode in particular, I just call this the shit on Richard episode because the editing is so anti-Richard that it's almost shocking it's in an episode about the winner. But again, you go back to the mindset that in the early days it wasn't to build up the winner, it was to hide the winner. You should not think that Richard's going to win after this episode, and you really don't because, man, do they crap on him. Let's see. Colleen has a great quote here. Every time he opens his mouth, it's like, oh, be quiet over there in the corner. You're not making any sense, and you think you're so smart. Just go home and go get your liposuction and go catch more fish because you're bugging me. You know, he thinks he's so above everybody. He's full of baloney, really. I have never seen another winner have a quote like that about them in their season. 
not even Jenna Maraska. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it's also like it's the whole scene is also like they get the last laugh too, right? It's like like you said, Paul. Like Richard says, okay, I'm I'm gonna you know I I might not catch as many fish until I'm appreciated, and then lo and behold, the women paddle out and like the trip the traps finally catch something for the first time, and they all gloat. Even Sue, one of Rich's closest allies, about like, oh, we're gonna come back and like look at Rich's face when we found out that we don't necessarily need him. So even the end of the storyline is like, yeah, Richard, you know, comes with some of a big fishing blowhard, but they don't need him at the end of the day. Yeah, the, the editors are really, really setting Richard up for a downfall in this episode. That's why I think it's so effective. Every single hint in this episode is Rich is about to get toppled. And it leads up perfectly to Jay for Jenna, how it just will gut punch you. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so the girls catch a fish. And Sue says, yeah, Rich is going to come over and say, well, it's a small fish because Rich is an asshole. But we did it. We caught a fish. Anyway, we'll go to the reward challenge here. And this is a really interesting one where they have to do make like a monkey and climb around and the winner gets a barbecue. It's like a ropes course, rope, a wet rope web. I mean, this looked awesome. Like this was really cool challenge construction. Granted, I haven't been on like many work retreats where maybe this is a, a formality nowadays, but I really liked how, because we've seen this a lot in like token sheens and I'm thinking South Pacific is like the giant cargo net leading to a bunch of things. This is like the prototype for that challenge, but even by Borneo standards, it's very good construction. Yeah, and even at the end of the challenge, the players say, oh, that was fun. Like, they all have fun on this one. But there's a really interesting dichotomy, and a lot of TV critics at the time pointed it out, and I want to make sure our listeners hear this, that right at the start of the challenge, Jeff says the winner's going to get a barbecue. It's a lot of food, tons of food. And the first thing Richard says is, if I win that, Jeff, you're not getting any. You better go hungry, buddy, because I'm going to eat it all. And so the TV critic says, what a dichotomy that is next to Colleen, who later in the scene instantly wins, and her first instinct is, everybody gets to share with me. And he's like, it, it could not be more evident who the hero and the villain is in this season when the, we have that kind of reaction the exact same scene, because that is literally what happens. Colleen wins the reward, and she's like, I want to invite everybody, and oh, Jeff I says love- no. I yeah. love that scene where, like, where she tries to complete Jeff's sentence by being like, and you could pick everybody. Not quite. <laughs> But yeah, a lot of people pointed out that dichotomy where Colleen's really becoming the hero. Rich is really becoming the villain. And so Colleen wins the reward. She gets to invite one person. And the person also gets, I forget, people forget this, is a letter from home. And this one Jenna does have. So Jenna gets invited on the reward. She gets her letter from home. So Jenna actually has a happy ending with the, that's a horrible term term to use with Jenna. But Jenna indeed has a, a positive conclusion to the end of her story where she gets her letter from home. But this is where we get the Barbecue Alliance, one of the great forgotten subplots of Borneo. I will also say, this was talked about in Burnett's book, there was a secret award where apparently they got a cooler full of Bud Light beer uh, that was not introduced when Jeff introduced the reward. It's not going to be, I don't know why they didn't like advertise the Bud Light. I guess they're waiting for the, uh, the shoddily put together viewing of the premiere that we're going to talk about in a few episodes. <laughs> but yeah, apparently that was another. So Jenna gets drunk for the second time in like a week on Survivor. Okay, the Barbecue Alliance. I'll race through this. Uh, Jenna and Colleen start talking about the Alliance situation, and we have a great back-and-forth shot. Yay, our fun barbecue. We cut back to the Toggies eating lame rice back at camp, just back and forth. It's a fun shot. And then Colleen, again, the total narrator of this episode, says, you know, we got to do something about this Alliance. She's like, you know what? How What an idiot Sean is. She's like, 
Sean is like, they voted four for Dirk, they voted four for Gretchen and four for Greg. And he's like, if it happens one more time, then I'll know. <laughs> and Colleen's like, and it was like, what are you talking about, Sean? It's happened three times. So they all laugh at him. And they're like, you know, Sean's kind of the swing vote tonight. Me, you, and Jervis could still do something. And so they start plotting. They could pull in Sean. Maybe they could pull in Kelly, the defector. This is their stand tonight. They are going to team up against Richard, four against whatever, and there's a chance they could finally knock off the fishing reef master asshole tonight. And I think we're to the end of the episode here where from here on out is just setting up Rich for the downfall where I'm sure 10-year-old Paul would love this. It's Richard's birthday, and he's going to be bare-ass naked the entire day. Yeah, definitely a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Paul. Would your six-year-old brother a fan of that as well? Maybe that's well. He, he maybe that's why he uh, had so much faith in him winning. I don't know. <laughs> I was yeah. gonna try to tie in something with an incest joke here, and then I'm just like, no, it's too late in the podcast, and I don't really want to go down that track, so I'm just not gonna say anything. But I mean, this is the thing that made Richard forever known, gameplay aside, as the fat naked guy, right to the point where when he made his most recent appearance on Survivor at the Caramoan reunion, he was naked talking to Rudy like this is a moment that is forever cemented not only in the members of Ratana's eyes but in America's as well this was sort of like the Cal moment where it really had no bearing on what was going on but it was a big TV moment that I remember so many people were scandalized by because it was just a crazy moment this guy's naked on an island on his birthday what's going on (laughs) although to be fair he'd been naked prior to this They'd mentioned it in other episodes in the merge. Oh, Rich is naked a lot. Like, but all of a sudden this episode, he's going to be naked the entire day on his birthday in his birthday suit. And the other players don't like it. And <laughs> it's just a funny montage of them just pointing out how flabby and unattractive and gross Richard is. Again, this is our winner. And they're including this in the episode. I like and... Jennifer for some reason drew the line quite literally at the butt crack. She's like, if, they, if he covered up his butt crack area, I would be totally fine. But as for now, I could not eat breakfast next to him. And, of course, the iconic Rudy quote, when I go home and my wife asks me who was with you, I'll tell her a queer that ran around bare-ass half of the time for one thing. And he just shrugs. <laughs> I do like the term bare-ass. <laughs> and, and then Colleen and Richard debate if he's doing it for shock value. And Richard has a great quote here that is unintentionally funny. He's like, Colleen saw me uh, naked and she made a funny face and threw up her hands. And he's like, who knows what that's meant to signal? And I'm like, I think it's meant to signal she wants to see less dick. <laughs> yeah, just just a you know, she doesn't. Is she gonna pull a Jervis and say, "Don't take this the wrong way," but throw her hands up and walk away? Yeah. And Colleen, again, the whole narrator of this episode is Colleen. She's like, I love that Richard gets annoyed by me. I love it. I just keep doing it because it eggs him on, and it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but again, yeah, the naked thing. Richard was always naked. This is what he was known as. And I see a lot of modern fans talking about All-Stars. Now, the Sue situation, not one I especially want to delve into, but people always ask, why was Richard naked? Why was he allowed to be naked? Because that's what Richard did. That's what the producers wanted him to do. That was his character. So it's like there was a reason he was naked. Now, what happened after that was not well done or not well uh, handled. But again, he was always naked and the producers egged him on and let him do that because that's what they wanted from him. So you got to keep that in mind here. All right. In immunity challenge, Rudy's lone win. He doesn't only end up winning immunity in this scene. He also wins the honor of flipping them all over at the end of the challenge. (laughs) 
Yeah, Rudy, why don't you finish that off? Let us see that crafty work done painted on those tiles. So, yeah, for people that don't remember, this has been done. I feel like this has only been done in between, like, this and Guatemala, where it's like the step on a square, turn over the one behind you. It's it's a sort of a strategy game, but it's also dependent on the people around you. I guess the big moment here is uh, in a big foreshadowing moment for what's to come. Sean has the choice between boxing out Jenna or boxing out Rudy and he boxes out Jenna and Jervis yells at him the entire time but Sean feels like this is the best thing for him to do and spoiler alert Sean doesn't end up winning this challenge and Jenna does not either yeah my, my only real takeaway from the scene is I can't I forgot that Rudy won a challenge and B you said earlier Mike that uh, that the challenge producer said oh we have to have a puzzle at the end so it's not a blowout that's such bullshit, because they can do stuff like this. This is interesting. It doesn't need a puzzle at the end. Why don't they do stuff like this? I mean, this is a puzzle, <laughs> yeah. sort of. But what I love is at the end, they're all cheering for Rudy. Now, anybody who doesn't think Rudy would win Survivor if he gets to a final vote, watch this episode while they're all openly cheering for him to win immunity. Well, especially over someone like Sean. Again, he doesn't know. Maybe one more time he'll figure out if this alliance is a thing. Meanwhile, Jenna is like coaching Rudy on how to beat Sean here. Okay, so Rudy wins immunity, and now we're going to go to the famous J for Jenna vote, and we get Sean talking about the alphabet strategy back at camp, and it's the only fair thing. It's nothing personal. It, it adds an exciting new dimension into the game. I do. I love it. Actually, happened right before um, before the challenge, but I love when the girls are like making fun of him and the whole alliance, and and they say like, "Oh, Sean, we're voting for a Zelda," and he asks yeah. why alphabetical reasons. Yeah, Zoe and Zelda. Those are our names. <laughs> the original Zoe right there, Colleen. Well, let's see. So that's the thing is that, like, not only has Sean gone along with this alphabet strategy, Sean has gone so far as to tell everybody about his alphabet strategy. And clearly he's doing it again to, like, not come across as malicious. But as we're going to see, it makes him so easily exploitable by him saying this is the person I'm voting for and this is the reason why and him just having no cognizant whatsoever of people actually being able to manipulate that and use it to their benefit yeah just some wonderful quotes here down the stretch they're going to set the ending of this episode up perfectly where <laughs> Kelly says Sean is an idiot he's like he's telling everyone to don't be in an alliance vote your conscience meanwhile he votes alphabetical he's not voting with his conscience what a dumbass <laughs> And then Sean, yeah, Sean says, if I think I'll be the swing vote, I won't vote for Jenna tonight, obviously. <laughs> and Jervis, ragging on Sean, he says, this is about Sean's alphabet strategy. He says, it's like my granddaddy used to say, if you want to be seen, stand up. If you want to be heard, speak up. And if you want to be appreciated, shut up. Oh, my God. So I well, I think we'll get into this when we uh, sort of, you know, give a moratorium to Sean next week. I've seen some people come around recently and be like what Sean did was a brilliant strategy because you know the Pagongs were all at the top of the alphabet and the Toggies were at the bottom but I don't know I think re-watching this I really do feel like he was a bit daft here or he was just playing a different game that you know he wanted to again come across as like the good guy that was not being duplicitous at all but didn't necessarily think that other people would be able to see that and use it to their advantage <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time eulogizing Sean when we get up to his episode. Let's just, uh, my thing is, I think he was just too nice and he has no idea what he's doing. He's way over his head at this point. He can't be mean. But yeah, they're just bagging on him. 
And we're getting up to the vote here. And again, just a Colleen showcase. And she's building up how horrible the Toggies are and how Richard is. And I just have a whole page of Colleen notes here. I'll give you my highlights. She says, Pagong was a good place to live, but now we're in a new neighborhood with the nasty neighbors. It's different. And she's like, we came in as, let's be friends. And the Toggies came in as, we need to smash. I love that quote. She says, Rich and Sue are smart. They're very smart people. Although Rich is just a numbskull. God. Yeah, very Napoleon Dynamite-esque. Yeah. So Colleen is just, she and Jenna are like, we're going to fight them tonight. She's like, you know what? If we take on the Toggy Alliance and lose, we're in trouble. But you know what? We were screwed anyway. So uh, they start hanging out with Kelly. And we get a whole montage with Kelly bonding with the young girls are like doing a fashion show and this is where sue starts to lose it because kelly is starting to bond with the pagongs and she doesn't like it yeah and uh rudy is even thinking about a female alliance or his mind has even gone so far as to think about lesbianism (laughs) (laughs) whoa rudy might get canceled here Again, Rudy, it's the he's seeing the women all hang out with each other, and it's the twin powers of evil, the axis of evil in Rudy's mind, with female alliance and lesbianism, and I guess communism maybe. But yeah, he's very concerned the lesbians will take over. And uh, yeah, so uh, Kelly says she's not going to vote with the alliance tonight. That she's uh, voting her conscience. She can't handle this anymore. Sue goes off on her. Richard goes off on her, tells her he feels he's disappointed in her. Kelly starts being shunned from her alliance. And all of a sudden, the J for Jenna squad might have their fourth vote. All they need is that fourth, and they can vote out Richard. And it's a big setup here, and the editing really makes it look like it's going to happen. And Jervis even says, we get rid of Richard tonight. We all starve together. It's going to be great. Especially on his birthday, nonetheless. And that's so interesting. Again, like looking if things were edited a bit differently. Let's say Richard did go, you know, I think people would be celebrating it. It's sort of like the prototype to Silas or John Carroll, this big villain gets his downfall. But I feel like if you, if you switch things around a bit tonally and you're looking at like the provider of the tribe is voted out on his birthday, like it almost seems Rupert-esque in Pearl Islands where like if, if Richard was the hero here, the Pagans could be looked at as totally evil for trying to do this. So again, it just speaks to how interesting tone can just shift the way you perceive things being done here. Were you guys all bought in by this narrative the first time you saw it? Were you rooting for Richard to go down here? Oh, yeah. I was just rooting for him to put on clothes. (laughs) Jay, I didn't hear you. I said, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, I had to wake you up there. Okay. No, yeah. I mean, this is this is the first season of Survivor, so I, I, you know, I can sit here and say that I watched it live, you know, when it happened, but I can't tell you, you know, nowadays we talk about how we watch shows and how we can sort of really intellectually sort of parse, you know, editing, you know, and, and not just editing, but, you know, just little foreshadowing tricks that are happening, you know, not just in Survivor, but in other things. Like I watched Chopped and you can sort of tell who's going to win based on, you know, what they say in interviews and what happens and all that sort of stuff. And it's like you learn things right and but this is not that like this is this is survivor i am fully on for the ride at this point you know and i'm I'm rooting for characters and i'm rooting against characters and it's, it's not how i watch the show anymore or or how as it was but absolutely it's how i was doing and you know i didn't like despise richard with every fiber of my being but also wasn't really rooting for him i was rooting for the pagongs i mean what can i say I can give my ultimate compliment here. If Richard goes down here, this is one of the greatest episodes of all time. But he doesn't go on, go down, 
And it's even better because of the way it happens. It's like it would have been awesome either way. It's just the producers lucked into this combination of all these people so perfectly in this episode. And it's edited so perfectly. And again, Jenna sets it up. She's like, Rich is ruthless. And the fact that we're voting him out on his birthday is not lost on me tonight. We're giving him a birthday present. And they're all giddy. The girls know they have him finally because they have Kelly. They have Kelly splitting. This is the perfect time. And the great quote with Colleen as they're leaving for tribal council, she lowers her voice and she says, okay, let's do this, Brutus. (laughs) The great thing about this episode is, again, you know, some of these other episodes were more so big shock endings, but you sort of see, you know, the evidence leading up to it throughout. This vote result is a perfect culmination of all the storylines that were set up this entire episode, right? You know, uh, Kelly is is feeling like she doesn't want to vote with the Alliance anymore, so she doesn't. Richard is coming across as cocky and petty, so the Pagongs vote against him. Sean is being out in the open with his alphabet strategy, and it gets used against him. Like, everything makes sense here, and it all culminates in this vote here where, God, they just beat this drum, but you can't help it when Sean is providing so much damn good content with saying, I think Jen is a safe vote tonight. If I ever thought she was in danger, I would think twice at the very least of casting a vote. Okay, we'll go to Tribal Council, one of the greatest gut punch Tribal Councils ever, where first we meet the jury, Greg comes in, which I seem to remember not knowing that the jury was going to exist and they were going to vote for the winner at the end. I kind of remember... The audience not knowing that. I remember it being very confusing. I mean, granted, it was 10, but I did have my adult, like, mother trying to, like, make, piece it together. And it was like, I thought they were, like, that the jury, that they voted every time as well. Like, it was kind of a confusing concept. Yeah. That's one thing that's been lost to history. I do not believe the audience was aware of how this game was going to end until right now. Right, which is why they had to have Jeff explain it every time and fake spoilers to be put in, right? But, like, even he did not. I'm surprised we didn't get one of those textbook Jeff interstitials, you know, in between Tribal Council explaining that Greg would be a part of the jury. Also, like, like the, the cueing of it. Jay, you can speak to this as, like, you know, someone who probably helps call cues for shows of, like, Greg coming out in the middle of Jeff speaking as soon as he brings up his <laughs> name is a very interesting choice. He ambles in like a zombie. Yeah, poor Greg. I mean, the jury is also something that has evolved throughout Survivor lore, right? You know, whereas like the jury can kind of take on some sort of personality. But this early in the in the in the show, and especially in the first season, they're basically like they're in the jury. Don't I mean they're important, but like don't even look in their direction. Don't talk to them. Don't they are not no 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 no. And I mean Greg's just over there, and he's just sitting there, and you know he's no longer Greg. He's just he's zombie jury Greg. And it's not even a jury bench. Did you notice? It's like a little stump. Only one person can fit on it. It's the saddest little Sandra bench ever. Yeah, like he really has to like, like he looks like he's like the thinking man. Like it looks like he's on the toilet with how low down that that stump is. So maybe it was an afterthought from production as well. of Like, yeah, I guess we have to give Greg something to do. Yeah, he can come watch Tribal Council that night. And Greg would later say it was one of the top 10 greatest moments of his life, along with his wedding. Okay, so so Sean at Tribal Council is going to dig himself the world's greatest hole here, better than Rupert in All-Stars on the Beach, where where first Sean, he does admit that the voting alphabetical is strategic because the Pagongs are all first and then the Toggies, as if no one else has figured that out. And then he says, then they all ask him about this. Jenna, what's your take on Sean's doing the alphabet? And Jenna says, this is a great quote, an underrated quote. She's like, I'm next. I'm Jay. 
I just love that quote. <laughs> and then Sean, of course, says, oh, Jenna knows it's nothing personal. I think she's a safe vote tonight. If I felt she was in jeopardy, I'd think twice at the very least about casting my uh. vote for her. <laughs> and Probst is like, Sue, yeah, please set. There's like volleyball set and smash. Sue, why don't you talk shit about Sean? And Sue says, Sean, he's neurotic. He's an idiot. And Sean laughs. He's like, thanks a lot. And she's like, I don't know. Either that or he doesn't have enough balls to make a decision. Uh, and Sean says, I don't have a malicious bone in my body. Casting a vote makes me feel malicious. I don't want to be malicious. And Sue's like, didn't you know that coming in, you moron? And so Sue's just right in his face. Yeah, this that's the thing. Like, as much as we're talking about, like, Sue being a surprisingly big part of the Tagi Alliance, if you're talking about, like, her winning game... I'm not sure if it's there completely. Like, she is definitely on the page at Richard at this point of, like, just sort of treating the opposition with contempt to a certain extent and not necessarily expecting that to come back to her at the end. And here we go. The great, this, in my opinion, the greatest moment of the season, the votes. They all go up and vote, and sure enough, all the, all the, uh, the Toggies vote for Jenna, because Sean is going to vote for Jenna in his alphabetical, so they have their three votes to oh team up with God. Jenna. Sean's one vote, and the Pagongs all vote for Richard. It goes Richard, 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 and the one swing vote is Kelly, who, again, just doesn't want to be a part of the group. She wants to do her own thing. She votes for Sean, of all people. And so, <laughs> thanks. Okay, here's the actual reveal. And again, it's done so well. You just think Richard's going down. All the pieces are there. Richard's going, and the votes come up. It's Richard, Jenna, Jenna, Richard, Richard, and you can see the audience on their feet. It's going to be four or five votes for Richard. He's done. And then the weird Sean vote comes up that Kelly threw in there for no reason. And then Jenna. And here comes the last vote. It's three to three. Who's going home? And in probably the J-E-N-N-A. Oh, wait. (laughs) Production decision. I don't know why they chose Sue's vote for the reveal because it's the one that's spelled wrong, but they did. But it's Jeff's first great moment as a survivor host he pauses just perfectly and looks up and says the last vote j for jenna and apparently according to burnett he looked sean directly in the eyes as he said that (laughs) so sean and kelly kelly is not blameless in this whole thing they had a chance to get rid of richard she didn't do it kelly strayed sean stupidly told everyone who was voting for all the toggies piled on and because of that j for jenna it all collapses and you can hear 30 million survivor friends <laughs> screaming in agony at this moment. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And I would argue actually one of the underrated best moves uh, in the game, at least in early survivor. Like I think they talk about the Gretchen vote. We're certainly going to talk in the next vote about uh, in the next podcast about Richard's decision to step down at the final three immunity challenge. But Rudy and Rich and Sue were awesome in this moment because they saw the pieces ahead of them and how they were going to act. And they said, look, it doesn't matter if she votes against us this time because we have Shaw that we can go off of. He's a constant right now and we can make sure that any other variables are taken care of. And it's so, such a fun move as, as frustrating as it was at the time to not lose Richard Hatch, to have Jenna go out at the hands of the man who adamantly insisted up and down that his vote would not matter this time is just, it's, icing on the goddamn cake it's so freaking fun (laughs) and again i'm not exaggerating if you thought america screamed when gretchen was voted out 
this moment, they probably screamed even more because this was the one time the Toggy Alliance and Richard were going to go down on his own goddamn birthday, and it just didn't happen because of Dr. Dumbass. And again, nothing against Sean. I'm sure he's a very nice guy, but oh my God, what a great moment for this season. Paul, did you cry? Uh, I don't think I cried. No, I, I think I kept it together. But I, I do have like a, a memory thinking like it is Richard. Like like you were describing Mario. I remember as a kid being like, oh my gosh, it actually is him. Like I remember that moment. <laughs> they played us like a fiddle. <laughs> and of course, right after the vote, the first shot is Sean shrugging, saying, oops. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> That bu- that bug-eyed look from Sean, just like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, but I said my vote wouldn't matter. Why does it matter? I don't get it. Uh, I also, it was this peak popularity for Jenna Lewis at this point? Because, like, she is, you know, single mother, got these heartwarming moments with losing her tape and then getting a letter from her kids, gets voted out, like, completely incidentally, and then ends up going into Survivor All-Stars and promptly, you know, angering a lot of fans. You'd have to imagine that, like, this is that example that a lot of people look at as like, you know what, I'd rather go out on top as a reality TV <laughs> character being very beloved and robbed. Well, I know in the book, Mark Burnett said that they expected Jenna Lewis to be a huge villain. Yeah. And so, like, when you see an All-Stars, that's what they really expected from her. So, yeah, she, she really, because of the circumstance of her storyline, was benefited, I think. Yeah, she's she's remembered well, you know, uh, from from the first episode on, you know, and it, it's tough, you know, get, getting a gauge for modern for more modern fans about Jenna Lewis because, you know, they have all stars to look at as well. And, and and all of that. And it's like, you know, before all stars in the first seven seasons or so, when you look back at things, you know, when you look back at the Pagongs, you looked at. You know, I mean, yes, there was Greg and there was Gretchen. And I know that we've talked a lot about Greg and Gretchen and how important and all that sort of stuff. But I think that the fan favorites of Pagong were Colleen, Jervis, and Jenna. I'd argue probably Greg over Jenna. But yeah, that's debatable. They were all yeah popular. Yeah, they were all popular, right? And it's like, you know, like you said, you know, Jenna, you know, they thought she'd be a, a villain and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, she was really handed this card of being on the 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 tribe we rooted for and, you know, some stuff happened to her out there. And it's like, you know, at the end, you know, there's, it's that wonderful scene of like her and Colleen basically going like, let's go do it. Let's go get out Richard. Let's do the thing. And like, they're going to go lead that charge. Eh, It didn't happen, but (laughs) I got to say this personally, as we end on this episode that Sean Kenneth, Dr. Sean Kenneth, I've never interacted with him personally over the years. He, a lot of the Borneo cast moved on with their lives But the other day, he posted a 20-year retrospective of Survivor. Happy 20th birthday to Survivor. And the picture he used was my write-up from the Funny 115. It's just a picture of Sean looking clueless with my caption underneath it. I wrote, the guy who fucked up Borneo. And (laughs) Sean posted that on his wall as his birthday message for Survivor. So I'm very pleased to know that I could influence his life like that. Wait, including the caption? Yes, he posted a picture of himself with the caption, just saying that, that he is known as the guy who fucked up Borneo. Well, that's the thing is that I think Sean, at the end of the day, like has a lighthearted opinion about himself as well. I I assume especially like years and years after the fact. So I think it makes sense. And I'm also happy about that as well. I could understand why somebody would want to like shirk away from the spotlight when they sort of came across as someone who got duped on national television. But Sean takes it in good stride. And I mean, next episode, we'll see that he promptly abandons the alphabet strategy. And gee, I wonder why. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and to be fair, you know, Sean, I doubt he's ever listening to this, but someone may pass this along to him. When I say you fucked up Borneo, you made the season better. Like that's I love this episode. It's so amazing. So I'm glad he doesn't take that personally, but that was and is the mentality that people still have. And the only difference is people aren't mad that Richard won anymore. Now it's like not that big a deal, but like, man, did people not too thrilled about Sean at the time that he just handed Richard this win. <laughs> and again, but again, I think this is the greatest episode of the season. It might be the greatest episode of Survivor ever. You got probes milking that last moment, the J for Jenna. It's so perfect the way he does it. And just again, I have nothing bad to say about all this. Sean, thank you for making this season. Well, I mean, all the players did. Every single player involved in personality was a combination to make this storyline and this episode happen. So it just happened to work out perfectly. Yeah, thanks for hitting a home run, Sean. <laughs> and with that, I think we finished Jay for Jenna. Do you have anything else to say, anybody? Uh, no. <laughs> All right, thank you. It's a dire situation, right? We've got, you know, an alliance of four with Kelly voting against her alliance, up against two Pagongs, up against Sean, who just royally screwed over a Pagong accidentally. Like, we know what's going to happen. That being said... I think that the, these next four episodes are really going to focus around Kelly's own internal struggle between, you know, finishing off the Pagongs and how she was nearly going to go instead of Colleen to obviously the biggest and most well-known moment of the season of Kelly turning on Sue and prompting snakes and rats. So I'm very excited to talk about how this all ends. I, I agree that I don't know from a narrative perspective if it's going to get better than this Jenna episode, but there certainly is going to be a lot of stuff to talk about, including like just breaking down this cast and also talking about the finale, which still is going always going to be the biggest event in Survivor history and arguably of like early reality TV history. Yeah. Yeah, there's only really at this point the audience only had a couple storylines. Uh was Kelly gonna stray? We have to say goodbye to Jervis and Colleen, the two most popular Pagongs. And I should point out, spoiler, when Colleen gets voted out, she also gets the no music treatment, just like Gretchen did. She gets the silent clock. It's really cool. But yeah, it's like astounding that when the season becomes a Pagong, it gets better. And that's, I can't say that about any other season, any other show. The minute it becomes evident who's going to win, the show actually gets better. It's astounding. Because the the Pagonging isn't the climax of sort of the the show. I mean, obviously we're leading toward a finale and stuff like that, but there's all this tension in Australia getting to that merge vote, right? Because clearly both tribes want to gain the advantage so that they can kind of pagong their way to the end. So, you know, in a, in a, in a sense, that's the most important action in the game. And yes, the Gretchen vote is the most important action in in this season in the sense that you know it establishes that the Toggies are getting an alliance but the everything's so all over the place right so so to me it's not a matter of this is the culmination of the story this is the this is the beginning of the story so that's why i think it gets better after the pagonging for borneo as opposed to other seasons yeah and just i'll quickly add it backs up my argument that the game itself is not interesting it's the people and the ethics and their reaction to the game that's interesting so i agree the story starts in borneo when the pagonging starts and I think, uh, yeah, and the, again, the only other thing I can say is most of uh, America's reaction to this uh, episode was, well, I guess we better root for Rudy now. <laughs> so, if you're wondering how when people started rooting for Rudy, I guess it would have been right here when it's clear it's going to be a Toggy 4 and we better not be Richard or Sue. 
Everybody became Jenna at the immunity challenge, rooting for Rudy on the sidelines. All right. I think with that, we will sign off. We've done our first three and a half hour episode in a while. So it's a little marathon for us old people. Even Paul is older than 10 now. So thanks for hanging in there, everybody. I started this um, started this podcast but with my 10-year-old self. Now I feel like uh, Rudy's 72-year-old self. So I need to go find some uh, tiles to flip over to honor, honor this time spent with you all. <laughs> All right. And once again, I want to thank everybody for listening. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. I'm Paul Oslison. And we will be back soon with part four, the finale of Borneo, where we finish off the most important Survivor season of all time. And I promise all four of us will be wearing shorts that do not expose our balls. I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Well, the way I feel, like, my votes are not going to go alphabetical, so today's Jenna. If I'm going to be the swing vote, which I don't think I will be, then I won't vote for her, obviously. She knows she wouldn't take it personally, and I think she's a safe vote tonight. If I, if I was, felt she was in jeopardy, I would think twice at the very least of casting a vote. Continue my alphabetic strategy. Jenna, you know I love you. No offense to this. I hope you don't get voted off. I don't think... Might have one vote or two votes or something like that, but nothing major, I don't think. I hope. The last vote? Jay or Jeff? Uh, whoa, cool flying fish.